right, we are on the mic. Today we have one of our new panel guests, uh, Daniel, or DP as we call him generally. Uh, so what's on our agenda today, Dwight? We got public intellectuals, we got the national debt, we got guns, internet censorship, and the climate. Oh my, that's a big one. There's a lot. All right, where do you guys want to start? I think we should start with public intellectuals since we've been kind of talking about that all morning already. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. So, um, are we starting with intellectual dark web? I think sure. we, yeah, yeah I yeah. think it's good to, yeah, define what, like, who we're talking about. Yes, yeah. so let's define um, what the intellectual dark web is. Um, so, I mean, my understanding of it is it's essentially um, a network of public intellectuals that kind of, um, there's a lot of them appearing on each other's shows and discussing topics together. Um it should be noted that um, they've gotten some attacks from the mainstream media. So, like, the New York Times put out an article about them um, essentially saying there's a lot of connection to, like, the alt-right and stuff like that through yeah. that network. Um, I think there's a little truth in that, but I think it's generally just kind of an attack on non-mainstream, uh, you know, political narratives. Yeah, I would say that that's probably mm. an effort to put them in a box and say, For sure. don't listen to these guys. And they're guys. doing that, they're doing that on both sides <laughs> of the political spectrum, yeah. where they're like, you know, you're not complying with the mainstream, yeah. you know, narrative, so you're not allowed. And that's um, really what I would say defines them, is the fact that they're sort of willing to talk about almost anything. True. Yeah, they don't exactly. seem to be Definitely. afraid of the, the recourse that might come Definitely. from the norm. And that's why they're so popular, is because yeah. a lot of people are looking for that unfiltered uh, discussion of the difficult issues of the day. Definitely. So that, that's a really important point. Yeah. Um, and I think we should have more people across the political spectrum wanting to be part of that conversation totally. rather than trying to silence it. Yep. And that's going to get into censorship in general, which is a big problem right now. Definitely. Um, but, like, I mean, you, you guys probably listen to the people in this particular uh, category more than I do, so why don't you guys go ahead and describe some of the members? Yeah, I mean, number one, uh, the Intellectual Dark Web actually has a website. So, oh, really? So yeah, they, I didn't you, know that. You, you can go on to see everyone who's who's in it, but it contains, like, people like, um, shoot, what is, what's Ruben's first name? Oh, Ruben. Dave Ruben. Dave Ruben. Dave Ruben. Um, it has Joe Rogan in it. He's technically in it. Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, the Weinstein brothers, so Eric and Brett, um, Brett's wife, Heather Hang. Heather Hang. We should and... say we're going to be getting more into the substance of each of these people because, like, yeah, I, I definitely come from a much more left wing perspective, and a lot of these people, I, I strongly disagree with a lot of their positions. But totally. Like... But uh, I think one of the coolest things I recommend anyone who's listening to definitely check them out because they're. Very intelligent people who are willing to really go deep into, like, the minutia of mm -hmm. all of the yeah. conversations that are happening, like, socially and stuff like that. Because one of the, like, the reason why I like them is there's a lot of social issues that are going on right now that I feel are very polarized and not very deep. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking for how to compromise or how to actually do anything about it. It seems like more of a tribe mentality. Right. like where they're trying to just, yeah, just fight each other. the other group down. And these guys actually, like, talk about... Like, just recently I saw one where um, Eric Weinstein was on Ruben, and he... The, the big thing that he said was he wants to get the dark web to now talk about how to actually fix the issues by steel manning the opposite side, which is another huge thing that they've, they've contributed to. It's a to really, the whole. really good development. Exactly. In terms of political debate. Mm -hmm. 
Totally. And actually, like, he's trying to hold the others accountable, too. So, for those listening, Steel Man, the idea is, as opposed to Straw Man, where you uh, recreate your opponent's argument in a intentionally weak and dishonest way to uh, undermine their position, Steel Man is you try to present their opinion in the strongest way possible so that the two parties can agree on that position, and then you start from that position of, of strength of argument to have your debate, and it's, it's a lot healthier. Totally. Anyway. So, yeah, I mean, that was, like, the other really big thing that I think is important, I was thinking about this, was, is that the discussions are continuous, and mm-hmm. they are constantly updating. So, if someone comes up with a good idea, they're like, oh, man, we're, like, the whole idea of steel, of steel manning, that wasn't necessarily, like, I don't even know philosophically that, that is a, that's a term, but they keep creating new terms that they like to use in a way that they think progresses discussion and i think that's an excellent example of where that is true yeah i mean that's that's a good development i've included that in my own vernacular now totally so um that's like i was thinking about it in terms of these are for me i i see them as like the philosophers of our time and so they are one of the cool things is they it's not like they wrote a book that you'll later come back, you know, that you'll read like Plato's Republic or something like that. And then you'll be able to critique it. It's like, they are constantly critiquing their own arguments and each other's arguments and you get to see them develop. So they're not like, they're, they're never like, this is the truth. They're like, we're going to continue talking about this until we can get to the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, that's really inspiring. So, um, I'll go ahead, Dwight. It looks like the steel man comes from Daniel Dennett originally, mm-hmm. possibly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so one thing that, um, that I definitely have a critique of, of, uh, the intellectual dark web is that I think the, uh, the strongest left-wing philosophers of our time, none of them are included. And I think that does tilt the discussion in a right-wing direction. So like the left-leaning people in the intellectual dark web, so like, you know, Sam Harris or Brett Weinstein, I think those people are more, um, establishment in their left-wing views Whereas, like, the more leftist people, so say Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Richard Wolff, you know, people like that aren't part of this network. And a, a lot of times I find people in this network making arguments that I wish, oh, I just want to see debates happen Yes. with these people. So, actually, Richard Wolff just put out um, a challenge to debate Jordan Peterson anytime, mm-hmm. anywhere on Marxism. Ooh, that'd so be I cool. hope that happens. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Yeah, I mean, um, the big thing that I've seen is most... Most all of the people within the intellectual dark web are they they call themselves centrists. So yeah, they, I noticed that they are not going to be your extremists or obviously the the more progressive the most progressive people, right. I guess. But they're trying. I get they're they're really trying to hold on to the like actual discussion between the two sides. Right. So you do get, and they're obviously more like on the intellectual side of things. They're not. They do try, they, or I guess they go into social ideas, like the more like transgender or something like that, but it's not necessarily like, let's reevaluate our whole capitalistic system, or let's reevaluate these really underpinning right. things Although, for society. I mean, we should elaborate that people like Jordan Peterson, I mean, talks extensively about things like Marxism, you know, um, why, but why he thinks bad. that doesn't work, why he thinks right. it's psychologically bad. Yeah. And so to not include, you know, the foremost Marxist professor in the United States in that discussion, I yeah. think is a huge blind spot. Well, it's also, it doesn't seem to me like they're purposely excluding them. 
Yeah, no, for sure. So no, like, don't get me wrong. I don't like, think that's a, they're talking yeah. to people that they can and that yeah. are around. And then you know, I'd be interested to see if Jordan Peterson does. To Dude, I would be very surprised if he awesome. didn't because yeah. he's he like if awesome. a reporter comes from somewhere and is like, I want to talk to you. He's usually pretty open to at least having an online discussion. So yeah. it seems much to his chagrin, he's regretted because some of these reporters are just trying to do a hack job. So. Yeah. Well, what, what like who, who like who decides like who's part of the uh, the intellectual dark web? I don't think there's like a decision. Like, what's the, like who's the coin? I think it's just term. an association of no. They're people. I mean it's kind of in groupy. They Eric they Weinstein talk. Coined the term. Yeah, and they and they talk about people. Okay, normally a a really big one is like they get pilloried, which is like basically they what's that pilloried is another term that they say is like they get pilloried by the media. So the idea is that they've said something extreme, and then the, there's some social media or or like establishment media that interviews them and tries to destroy them by like straw manning their arguments but also trying to associate them with like these extremists. super extreme negative like negative extremists yeah. and then they're like they usually do really well in argument like argument uh arguing the opposite of that so like defending themselves and being able to be in a like logical frame of mind so like the idea right. that um brett was like had students come into his room and like call him all of these like like call him a racist and they were literally like they were protesting in his classroom while he was giving a and then a he lecture actually and then down. he actually talked yeah. him down exactly same with jordan peterson who was really against the uh hate crime uh bill c16 in uh in canada and there was a bunch of protests at the school and yeah. all of the people he would try to have a conversation with and be like I don't, I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a terrible person. This is why I think, I think this is an, an impeachment of freedom of speech and it's not okay. And totally. that's why I'm not going to do it. Well, give a little background on, um, I mean, what was that incident about? The C-16 one? Yeah. Okay, so C-16 was a um, bill that was put forth in Canada about attaching the compulsory speech of individuals who are speaking to a transgendered individual who wanted to be called by so their chosen the name. term that they've chosen. Exactly. You're saying that's an infringement of freedom of speech because you're requiring me exactly. to do certain things. And, right. the, and it was, the, the big thing for him was that it was clearly that either the individuals who wrote the law didn't understand the, the uh, implications of it, or they were directly being like untruthful about what it was because... They were like, oh, you won't get any jail time by it. And he was like, no, you literally will get jail time. You can fine me if I don't. You can, like, because of the way the, that the hate crime laws that were created, mm. you you could literally face jail time for just not calling someone so they, something that they wanted to be called. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So that so he was just like, no, this isn't okay. And, like, there's it's been... different than, like, going out and, like, verbally assaulting someone. It's like, yeah. I was just minding my own business, and mm -hmm. you're saying I have to use certain words when I exactly. speak to you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's interesting, too, because him, so Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein sort of share that in that, um, they, sort of, they sort of share that narrative in that they got rocketed into, like, their fame by these controversial incidents. So, you know, Jordan Peterson was opposing that bill. Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hang, were opposing uh, the idea that at Evergreen College, they had this uh, they had this day of absence that was 
uh, tradition from like the right. 1970s or something where all the people of color would just not show up for class one day and the administration wanted to flip that and, and say that the, all the white people were not able to show up for class that day right and so brett weinstein and his wife both spoke out against that and they were like this is racist and i'm not going to do it and they got, uh, that's where these protests happened, and they essentially got ran out of the college, and they ended up settling with the college. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> dilemma, because um, it seems the whole thing started with the idea of, like, um, you know, it, it, a movement among students of color to say, you know, a day of absence where we're not going to come to school, so you can feel the absence of, you know, that diverse section totally. of the community, because we've been historically disenfranchised, so it's kind of like a political statement. It came from a play, also. I can't remember really? the name of the play, but there was a play that all the uh, black people in the town decided not to show up for, mm. for the day, and that, you know, totally. wreaked havoc. Yeah. Which is, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, but the idea of telling a group of people they can't come to school, yeah. obviously that's crossing the line. And there were a bunch of other No matter what things. group it is, telling them they can't is, yeah. I think, there were a bunch of other little things that came out about that whole thing later where there would be some sort of gathering where a white person would come in and they would not be allowed to sit in certain places or yeah, like that's eat really... certain types of food. Well, and it's just like, how is that How is that even yeah. remotely okay? You know? yeah. I think this is like the, the coolest <clears throat> part for me for like the, the, the um, sorry, intellectual dark web is that they've shown that this idea of progressive movements, of like social movements... There is this underlying, like, concern for people's rights mm -hmm. that co goes to the point of impinging on other people's rights, where these, like, really liberal-leaning people don't realize that they're getting into, like, fascist tendencies. Or they do. So, well, <laughs> I mean, I well, think just authoritarian. Okay, yeah, careful oh, sure, saying fascist. sure, fine, authoritarian, right. fine. Yeah. Then that's, uh, I think that's better. So, but it's... Very authoritarian. Though. Very. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm hugely anti-authoritarian, Which anyone who's been listening so far would know. Which, <laughs> if you... I, I can't imagine that if you went up and talked to those individuals and said you're being authoritarian, they'd be like, oh yeah, I totally think that. Right. It's like, almost always they're like coming from a place of like, where they've gone through some shit, they feel like they've been like oppressed in some way, right. and they feel like they want to, you know, make it even, make everything even in that egalitarian way. But to the point where it is an authoritarian, it's an enforced. Right, and I, I definitely want to get into that when I I have like a deep dive I want to do on some of Jordan my disagreements with Jordan Peterson, mm. which will totally. go into some of this stuff and okay. that development on the left. Um, but I don't know if I really want to do that yet because I don't want to hog it. But <laughs> well, unless anyone else has anything to say right now, I'd say that's fine. We'll I mean, if you Daniel and Sean, have you guys listened to these guys much? Like, who have you guys listened I to? I know Joe Rogan and Sam Harris, and then the brothers. Um, but yeah, some of these people I haven't even heard of. Yeah. So I just need to do. And I've just recently research. heard of them for sure. It sounds like the problem is that they're getting put into these boxes. Right. And they're yeah. really most of them are just in the middle. And they're just trying to understand the world. Well, and I think the biggest thing is they're not to be put in boxes. Yes. Yeah, that's, no one should... That's one of the biggest things that I notice about them is there's two big things. One is that they constantly get misquoted and taken out of context, especially Sam Harris. I think he's the most commonly I've, abused I've in that regard yeah. because he's... And, and he actually sets himself up for it really, really well because he, <laughs> he will go into these crazy thought experiments yeah. where he sets up this idea and he creates this extreme world and then he talks about what would happen in that world. And so then people just take what he said about the 
like without any of the setup and they say oh sam harris said we should nuke the saudis and it's like (laughs) that's not even close to what he said at all so that's going to be something we're going to talk about later because i do think he gets into some really irresponsible issues sometimes but and i think he's becoming aware of that because like i hope so they had some discussions with jordan peterson and him and with uh oh yeah you should because that's again this is like the adaptation that i'm talking about that they do it's like they Sam has like looks at the crowd and says like go ahead and misquote me on Twitter. It literally says like that yeah. kind of thing. It's like this <laughs> is going to be a section yeah. where they will try to like yeah misquote me. Right. So yeah. he's he's becoming aware. But. Definitely. But the other thing that I was going to say about them is that they all do hold views that don't really fit into a box very well. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. Sam Harris. Uh, I mean, I can't even say that. You Especially do find a lot of, them. and that's kind of like opposed to the nature of the age we're in because it's so tribal. And yeah. the idea of people holding views that are kind of, you know, not easy to put on a team, I think makes people who are so team-oriented very uncomfortable. Definitely. And Sam Harris points out a really good thing about that. He, he's like, the fact that your views on healthcare can reliably predict your views on gun control is a problem because those are not related and they shouldn't be. And so, like, it makes it so that people get in this idea where they think they're a Democrat and they're like, okay, well, what do Democrats believe? And then they sort of adopt those beliefs and become this tribe when it makes so much more sense to have views on either side in a lot of cases. And that's what I see a lot with the two-party system that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like if you're a Democrat, that means you want to get your, like, take everyone's guns away, which Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be that way. You should be able to own guns, be a Democrat. You should, like, the the re... I feel like it's caused a lot of divide within our country. Yeah, I agree. But that, that is, like you said, is part and parcel to the political system we yep, have. Definitely. And, you know, them steering their bases to be as angry at the other base as possible because that generates votes and they're able to steer the debate by, you know, getting people all riled up. And it's just what Trump things. said in his rally in Nevada, that Democrats are an angry, uncontrolled, like, unhinged mob. Yeah, look <laughs> in the mirror, buddy. <laughs> and it's like, Republicans are the same. That's a two-party system. You get yeah. two crazy mobs that just go after each other. Well, and anyone who points to one side or the other as being the mob really weirds me out. Because, yeah. I mean, if you look, it's happening all over the country, like the clashes between Antifa and the Proud Boys. I mean, you know, these are these are similar kinds of people or people reacting in a similar way, and they just have a different jersey on. That's really exactly. I think it harkens to why, like, the intellectual dark web is this coined phrase anyway. I mean, it's like, I think people who have ever been interested in a particular subject, if they've got the gumption, will pursue the intellectuals that have existed in the field already. Definitely. It's like, these are, like, convenient modern-day ones packaged in mainstream media, and so we all have access to them. And I think, like, what a bigger issue is, is why they're so popular, mm-hmm. like, in this mainstream outlet. It must harken to like this inherent desire of everyone Definitely. trying to find out more information, and you know, uh, I you know I think it's it's like it's cool that they're all there, and it's like all, like I listen to several of them. I listen to Jordan Peterson mainly, um, but it's you know I kind of slowed down on listening to them. You know what I mean? Because at the same time, I'm like, what am I looking for? You right. know what I mean by listening to these guys? I think it's you know you know, why are these guys so popular for, like, mm-hmm. the masses, you know, and it's, like, it's that search, it's, like, this, like, um, 
It's like there's like this mass energy in our culture for like trying to like understand like what's going on and like have a better grip um, on it. And it's like um, I don't know. I like the I like I like what most of these guys are doing, and I like the format and like the discussions they're all having and stuff too. But I just worry it might lead down a path of just like. Um, you know, almost of like this false reverence for Jordan Peterson or something oh, like that, sure. where it's like, you know, you now base all of your, uh, and all I have of your seen philosophy. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Something that's really concerning me before, sorry, okay. not to cut you off, but I just want to say they're definitely not in the mainstream media though. That's mm-hmm. kind of yeah. one of the things right. that makes right. them different. They all oh, have like podcasts on, and stuff I was gonna say that they go too. on each other's podcasts. Like what I go, are we defining as that then? What like I TV? am seeing though is people who mainstream are mainstream media. Yeah. That's like CNN. So TV, TV nations, TV networks. So YouTube doesn't count as mainstream media no 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 no, no. Okay. so we're t- or if they're appearing on like um uh mainstream journalistic outlets mm-hmm, yes. so like washington post new york times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well the idea is that these individuals put out their own videos on yes they mm-hmm. do they, they choose a, a source to do that which would be youtube because it is like one of the number one things and then through their like their discussions or argumentations people like them so they watch them a lot and they're like oh i agree with you it's not yeah. doctored yeah. to be like this is the narrative because like yeah. cnn msnbc yeah. fox all are like this is what we're telling yeah, you yeah, is yeah, true I, if I, if that was part of exclusively the definition of it then yeah i think we've all realized that those that, are all invalid that, that yeah that news that corporate news yeah. outlets well, are very very like not great I and i would say that we in this room definitely <laughs> yeah but the, the well we the should thing... also say statistically young people yeah. are recognized okay and statistically young people, people get sure. most of their news from online sources and uh, i think it's like people over 45 i think yeah, most say, of their online, news you mean well, not it's, it's diversified so yeah. some they do get some of their news from those sources oh, okay. but oh, they okay. also seek independent out Sure. Um, because they're online and it's easy. Yeah. Whereas people, I think, forty-five and over, are getting their news almost exclusively from cable news. Right? Totally. So that's that purely in wheelhouse, you know, establishment narrative. Yeah. As opposed to adding the diversification of independent outlets. For sure. What were you gonna say about? Yeah. Um, so that? one of the things I've seen, and I don't think this is necessarily um, something that only these people are are subject to. Um, yeah. But there is a tendency to have people just kind of use these public intellectuals to justify um, tribalism they already had. So, like, I see a lot of people. So, like, one of the sites I follow, Democracy at Work, which anyone who's been following up to this point knows they advocate for uh, the workplace to be co-owned and democratically run by the workers. I see people posting Jordan Peterson arguments against Marxism in there. So, so don't get me wrong. This view comes from a Marxist critique of capitalism. Yeah, but but it, what they're saying is, oh, you just want um, equality of outcome. Right. You just want equality of outcome, which is something Jordan Peterson hits all the time. But this but particular never... point of view has nothing to do with equality of outcome. Exactly. Yeah. It has nothing to do with any authoritarian structure of any kind. Right. Yeah. But they're just saying, oh, I'm on the right. I believe Marxism is bad. Jordan Peterson told me Marxism is bad. Here's a talking point. Anyone who says anything about Marx. Here's my talking points, and you're on the other team. Totally, and I feel like that's such a cherry picking of yeah. these individuals' ideas, right. just to re, you know, like right. recapitulate. But I think that's yeah. also part of the concern that's happening. Is I think um, people are only seeing how people on what they recognize as the other team are touting certain intellectual figures to perpetuate yeah. their tribal affiliation. Right. 
So that's a, that's an interesting problem as well. I I know, but that one I feel like is so difficult because it's all you can difficult. do is encourage the people to be like, okay, let me listen to who these people talk yeah. to. Because when they get together, you get people like, you'll get uh, Jordan Peterson in with Brett Weinstein, in with Eric Weinstein, and they'll yeah. talk about those situations. Or, or, or Ben Shapiro, yeah. a Republican. But one thing I wanted to say about that is that I think... Using that as an argument against the, which it seems like that's framed as an argument against the intellectual dark web. I don't think it is. That, yeah, they're I mean, using people do that. that shit all the time with everything. That's just people being retarded, <laughs> exactly. yeah, and you exactly. can't ascribe that to anything in particular. Like retarded? just because, yeah, they're being retarded. They're taking that <laughs> argument out of context, and it doesn't mean anything in that context. I say that's retarded personally because they they don't understand what they're saying, and they're just parroting it back like it means something in this context when it doesn't. Right, so that, that that to me is being stupid. Okay, so I think for being politically correct, that's probably a better word. That's something. <laughs> that's stupid. the only thing. Stupid, <laughs> I choose. I choose not to say it, but that's it's whatever. It's like midget because it is yeah. like a disorder. Well, like we can a, talk about political like correctness on another one because I avidly disagree with political correct culture. So you'll hear that. I'm mostly disagreeing with it. I think there's a little validity. Yeah. So anywho, what I'm saying. What I'm saying, got though, is We're just sorry. that... I'm not sorry. Is yeah, that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I still love you, <laughs> Great. I'm just saying that I don't think that's really a valid critique of Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, or any of these people. Definitely. Because that's just other people Definitely. taking their views out of context and using yeah. them for... And when people do that with anything. So. Yeah. I, I do think that's where a big part of that concern is coming from. It's from within that tribal camp, seeing that, and then trying to put you on the other team. Yeah. Um... I do think these people um, should probably maybe speak a little bit more to uh, to like who their audiences are and maybe try and uh, separate themselves from certain sects of it that they disagree with. I don't know if that's happening oh, yeah, very they much. Definitely, they've talked about how they've all been represented as like supporters of the alt right, and they're all like, "Yeah, this is the reason why," and it's ridiculous. See, it is interesting though, because like um, they've not. I don't. I don't want to talk to who this person is, but I know someone who's like pretty fascistic yeah and like super right-wing trump you know hardcore authoritarian right-wing yeah and uh i heard him not in a very intellectual way but using some of the things jordan peter said to justify totally. his position no totally and so you know that's gonna happen no matter yeah. who we're talking about exactly. and it's just important for public intellectuals to speak directly if they I see agree. that association occurring but it's also interesting because what we were talking about earlier of you know, kind of trying to get away from the idea of tribalism. Yeah. That's going back to a lot of it. It's saying mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't support the alt right. It's like, well, maybe you do in some cases. Well, I don't think that they. Specific than I don't think that they. Like that, yeah, either. I don't think that they need to do that. I think they should be able to represent their own views and wherever they match up with other people being crazy and tribal. I don't think that's their problem. They're totally. Person. They are totally okay with saying they don't support anything alt right, though. Yeah, they, they literally okay, will so be they're like, they're like, because like, there's even like examples of Jordan Peterson on camera, because that's mm -hmm. another huge thing. Is like he puts like his whole freaking life on camera. <laughs> yeah. But uh he's like at the rally at the the um Bill C16 rallies like for the the transgender people attacking him really was like they were like what do you say about Nazis being here? Are you a Nazi supporter? And he was like no, I don't want Nazis here. Yeah, if I, I did find them, take them away. Yeah. Like I don't want them here. And if anyone commits any violence, then I want them not here. That's yeah. not okay. And it's just like, so that's yeah. good. That's but good shit. 
But that, I mean, he said that on camera, and then you'll still see after that people sourcing him as, like, an right. alt-right supporter. So it's Well, just... and this happens across the board, and it can be very nefarious. So, I mean, mm -hmm. like, um, they did the same thing during the 2016 election, is, like, they would smear Bernie because, right. you know, certain Bernie supporters, they said, were, you know, being sexist towards Hillary. Totally. There's this whole Bernie bro narrative. It's <laughs> like, oh, you're a Bernie bro. You don't support Hillary, so you're sexist because you support Bernie. It's like, what are you talking about? I want universal health care and free college and not going to war and fixing climate change. Like, those are my issues. Yeah. And no corporate money in politics. That's why. Yeah. It's just right. like, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm a guy and I vote for Bernie, so I'm sexist. Okay. People cool. do that kind of shit all the time and they just want to push people's ideas off into a corner and yeah. debase them. And I, that, I think, is a huge problem. But I. We've got to have the facilities to be prepared to deal with challenging viewpoints too you know yeah. it's a reflex to do that yes. you know so you can't like blame them necessarily 100 percent. definitely again yes. it's like you hearken real, you hearken again to the the bigger issue of these intellectual pursuits you know it's like what what are people trying to get out of like these intellectual pursuits totally. what what do they need to validate in themselves that's the thing it's like everyone's seeking like this validation for their position yes. their, their philosophy and this outlook on life and it's like it's it, and it's just like in our culture, it's like almost 95, you know, percent in, in intellectual pursuit, you know? And it's like, I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's great to have like rational, like discussions about stuff and like, what are the individual, like, you know, points of a dude, um, you know, who is in the club of the intellectual dark web or whatever, you know, um, and who's not and like why there is a distinction between that anyways and there's already something weird going on with that obviously you know so well, it's it was originally very very informal they yeah eric weinstein was, was just talking about how there's sort of become this group of people who yeah have been passing well if it's that if it's, that's not that how it started that's not where it's at now there is something kind of weird you know there's like a website well we want to say this is all happened but in literally in, yeah. a year yeah mm -hmm. so and there's they, a lot of talking of each other like constantly so they're like we need a name for the like yeah. we have this like on the mic it's like, like we need a name for our thing that yeah. we do yeah. it's and an association of individuals yeah. it but doesn't seem like it's exclusive one me. thing that bothers well, no. me about yeah, it though when i say that i don't think there's um to finish. Oh. sorry what's that no it's fine Keep oh, going. Okay. um it's so okay. one thing that definitely bothers me about it mm -hmm. in when i was saying that i don't think there's a like a left wing representation there is i don't think there's any individual in the intellectual dark web who's fundamentally anti-capitalist and I think that's a huge fucking blind spot. They're all pro-capitalism. Every single one of them. Even the ones who say they're left-wing. So that is a right-leaning overall perspective that I really wish was being challenged more. Because there's an echo chamber in terms of saying capitalism is okay and good and we all agree. You know, it's just a matter of should it be more left-wing regulated or, you know, more free market. Which is a closed dialogue that doesn't take into account the full spectrum of debate right now at all. Yeah. Again, though, I think that's sort of an unfair criticism because it's not this contrived group. They didn't For sit sure. down and say, like, oh, we need to get people on all these issues that have I'm not. Ideas I'm not even like. criticizing them okay. or saying that that's their fault. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I would like to see that discussion evolve sure. yeah, by including those perspectives. That'd be cool. Yeah. For sure. None of these people are really economists yeah. so yeah i think that's part of the reason that that hasn't happened i mean eric weinstein but they should does, speak with with a you know authority perceived authority about, on yeah. these subjects so that's yeah. why it, either stay out of it or you know let's have a robust debate and it sure. has to include critics or it's not a robust yeah. debate 
I haven't heard them talk too much about the economy personally, so I don't really know. Jordan um, that's says, most of what I have. He's. It, it's an issue I'm really interested in. So that's actually most of what I've looked for, and it's mainly Jordan Peterson who gets into that. Um, Weinstein has a bit too, but Weinstein. Obviously, Weinstein. Sorry. He, uh, he Eric Weinstein is a, a pretty big authority on that because he manages Teal Capital, so he oh. does know a lot about the economy. But right. obviously, he's probably more capitalistic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Jordan Peterson has definitely talked about Marxism mm. and a critique of Marxism. Mm-hmm. So it would be great to hear Richard Wolff debate him oh, on that, that because so I much. think his main critiques are sort of from a psychological basis, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, he's a psychologist, so I'm, I'm stoked to get into let's, that. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's do it. Um, Daniel, what was that point you were going to make earlier? Did you get cut off? Oh, um, I did, but let's just keep going. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm okay. definitely, yeah, okay. I'm understanding the point um, of this. I mean, don't feel bad. Anyone yeah. jump in anytime. Oh, no. Yeah. I got good. the vibe. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I did some, some like, deep listening to Jordan Peterson in terms of his critiques of Marxism and all that, and so I definitely had some disagreements here. Um, and I, I definitely want to talk to you, Drew, about this, because I know you spent a lot of time listening to Jordan Peterson. Um, so let's see. Um, he had a lot of points. Let's see. So one of the main issues he talks about is kind of like um, the idea of neo-Marxism the merging of postmodernism and Marxism. And um, he talks about the idea that Marxism says that uh, the accumulation of inequality of wealth is a flaw of capitalism. So he's talking about Marx saying that. And he says that that is incorrect. Um, because, and he, he points to the Pareto principle, which is the idea oh. that in any human endeavor, um, <laughs> you know, what is it, like 30% do 70% of the, it's like the success or something like, like that? It's like 80% of the work. Yeah. So um, when I was listening to him, he talked about how that's the fact that capitalism produces inequality is untrue because that's going to happen in any human societal relation. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things he talked about. Um, And then let's see. Oh, sorry. Let's just talk about that. Um, Anyway, yeah. So that's something I really disagree with his representation of that and whether that's accurate mm. because what Marx talks about, he does say that it's the, the accumulation of wealth is a thing in capitalism. But what he, what he points to more specifically is that this um, unequal accumulation of wealth and power within a society is a, is a result of the hierarchical structure of societal relations. So saying that, um, you know, in the workplace you have the manager and all the employees, and that represents the same structure as, say, um, lords and serfs in feudalism, or masters and slaves in right. slavery. Yeah. And Marx points to the fact that we need to have relations that are non-hierarchical and authoritarian as the primary basis of societal relations. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the idea of, like, say, democratizing the workplace totally. comes from. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's what Marx was arguing. And so I think that's something that really needs to be um, explored is that whole idea of, you know, is it necessary to have a society where power is controlled by the few as opposed to the many and that kind of thing. Um, So another thing he goes into is talking about how um, in the 60s, he says Marxism was totally invalidated because of everything going on in like communist Russia and all these different things. And because it was invalidated, um, there was kind of like, a switching of language, and this is where right. it gets into like feminism right. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, th- postmodernism. Right. So, um, what's your understanding of postmodernism, Drew? So, 
Okay, so, well, postmodernism is the idea that there are, uh, there's no real, like, structure to anything. It's that there are the only, well, the only structures are power structures. Right. So, the idea that, like, there will be certain groups who wish to have power, and so they create kind of a system that will enforce that power, right. re reinforce that power. And then there's, like, group dynamics, really, and, like, no one has, it's, it's also at bottom, there's no real truth, there's no real right. no anything. objective reality, exactly. no objective morality. There's just the... Moral relativism and all that. Exactly. Yeah. There's just the standards that, like, are put forth by each group as, like, this is the right thing, and yeah. then if you follow it, you will end up powerful, yeah. basically. So, um, the way he connects this to Marxism, it seems to me, is... So, in, in Marx's class analysis, it's a way of analyzing history through the lens of the competing interests of those in power versus those, the mass of people. And saying that, you know, there's a, a conflict going on there because those in power are constantly uh, trying to enact policies or various things to keep themselves in power and keep the masses out of power. Mm -hmm. So, that's Marx's class analysis, essentially. Um, and what Peterson is saying is that after Marxism essentially became not okay in the 60s and all of that, um, that... Well, proved to be wrong in his... That's, like, his thing is... Right, like, which is something I want to also critique yeah. because he's not taking into account the, the, the mass political war that was right. waged on left-wing thinkers. It's right. not like it was a logical debate and everyone agreed that it wasn't okay. It was right. a purging of that whole political identity and totally. discussion. Totally. Um, I agree. I agree that that's not a fair assessment. You can't really say that it was proved that it won't work. Well, and the Fine. I think okay. So with this whole thing that like even that postmodernism kind of like take that I just said is kind of like a stereotype. It's not really because postmodernism is obviously it's a critique of the intellectual structures that we've created. Right. So it, in that way. It's really easy to say that they don't like any kind of intellectual structures, but if you look at the if you look at the postmodernist philosophers, like cool. and you read them, yeah, you know they they obviously believed in using some kind of structure to get out the information that maybe structures should be like contemplated. But um, yeah, I would say that in that same kind of idea is like Jordan stereotypes Marxism as what took place during communist Russia. See, and, yeah, exactly. He only points to uh, kind of like that state control of things yeah. and calls that Marxism. Totally. Well, and he, but he I, does go into the psychology of like of power relations and all that too. Well, and he's, he almost, I don't know. Like, I would like to look into that. I don't know about it as much as you do. I don't know about the economic system as well as you do for communism. But the, the idea that he once put, like puts forth is that these were necessary transitions because it didn't happen just in Russia. It also happened in China. And it was right. like that, that for some reason, when people decide to go communism, it ends up killing millions and millions and millions of people because they do it maybe in an inefficient way. But he's like, well, is it like, is that See, implicit in trying to change over but to this, that this is my big problem with him is, yeah. is he seems to say that any, um, alternative to capitalism equals authoritarian government control and that marx inherently means that hmm. marxism okay. means that everything i was listening to okay. seemed to, for him to be painting i don't picture. know if he ever says anything about like capitalism being the best thing but i do definitely think he's said that communism is not a good alternative he, yeah. he definitely thinks that it's the worst for sure yeah no definitely i i want to find a note um 
There was which, definitely one point where he said that, um, oh yeah, here he goes. He says, uh, society is flawed, but we have no better alternative alternative to what we have. So that's what he, that literally he said that. Totally. That there is no viable alternative to capitalism. At least that we Because we've yet, tried right? them and they didn't work. Yeah. So, so he really mm. is kind of equating the say... critique of capitalism to the experimentation of state-run society and saying yeah. that didn't work. I think we got to be careful about that one because I would I would want to know what he was saying around that also right. in the context of that because I feel it seems silly to me that he would say there's no alternative to what we have now. Well, there was and I'm I sure feel, he'd probably dig further into that. Yeah. That was his quote, but I mean, well, obviously if you said, "Well, let's talk about, you know, hypothetical things we haven't tried yet." Yes. Then maybe he, you know, be well, he's not it. saying that we should stay where we are and not change anything. That's why I would be I would assume from that statement. Well, really he went on to talk about how like all we have is like how do we reform what we have? Yeah. We shouldn't be trying to get something new. Right. So that is again where I would disagree with him. But. Yeah, I mean, well, that is a yeah. That's that one's difficult. He's also very youngian. So the other which thing I like is because you know yeah. I'm well, young. one of the things that Carl Jung said though is that you shouldn't try to take on other cultures. You should try to develop your own culture from where mm-hmm. it is. Because if you try to take on another culture, you basically he he had the idea of there being like even this evolution aspect to it, where you're like literally it would be like us trying to breathe CO two. It's like you're you don't have the equipment, right. so I don't know if I would agree with that. Like especially with like the the kind of neuroscience that we've had about like how the brain can adapt to different situations. But I would say that maybe it's good to think about it in the way where it's like structurally all of the the um, the structures that we've created in the West and like how our government is set up and yeah. stuff like that. Maybe it's really like it is more important than to try to flip all of that that you try to adapt it to become better that's what i would say too because i think it's fundamentally more likely that you would go down that path than have a switch and then i mean you have to get into like are you talking about you know flipping everything or just a core mechanism well that's why i'm talking about that's why i really think i would love to see that richard wolf Mm -hmm. thing because i think like because of how much we like what we've talked about is of it being compatible with capitalism is like I think that would be like the number one thing where it would be like oh like I don't compatible with markets or markets I guess sorry so, well we do have to talk about those definitions yes yeah, and real, here's something that I would real. say about what Jordan Peterson believes and I'm I'm sort of painting between the lines here a little bit but my understanding is that he does not so he really hates quality of outcome right and I think he really doesn't like state run economy right. And so I agree with him on those points. Me too. And I would say the biggest critique of any, you know, completely Marxist idea of like totally equality of outcome, which maybe, you know, that's not exactly what Marx is advocating for, but that's the idea of communism, right? Is that it removes incentive structures. Definitely. And so Jordan Peterson is essentially saying we need incentive structures or nothing's going to work. And if you're going to say that the idea of equality of outcome, we should just essentially understand that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. I agree with that completely. Yes. I think I think we should say that. I think we should have a floor be below which no one is allowed to fall yes. in terms of their outcome, you know. But after that, I think we cannot have a quality of outcome where people won't try right. to do anything. See, and this gets into an interesting thing where he's critiquing the feminist movement because he talks about how the feminist movement um, is a neo-Marxist movement because it takes the template of Marxian class analysis where you observe those with the concentration of power and those without 
And he says the modern feminist movement does the same thing, but it just paints the patriarchy as the oppressor and women as the oppressed. And in his mind, it means that um, it's kind of like, a f- it, this is my interpretation of him, so obviously I could be yeah, yeah. wrong. Um, but he paints it as, it's kind of like a fundamentalist thing, where you turn all men into the enemy, um, and it's about, you know, overcoming the enemy at any cost, and that kind of thing. Um, and he uh, equates that to its connection with Marxism. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think the irony of that is that kind of developed after the crushing of real Marxist and left-wing thought. And this whole development of identity politics and this current idea that a lot of left-wing movements have, which isn't about overturning the hierarchical structure, but simply integrating oppressed groups into it. So you have this idea now where it's like, oh, capitalism's fine, we just need women and black people on the boards of directors. And that will fix the problem. Um, I really think that has been something that the left has been steered into by the political establishment to steer them away from critiquing class and wealth and concentrations of power. And you see the Democratic Party co-opting all of these things. They have no problem with it. They've gotten fully on board with this idea of we need more women. You know, we need women in Congress. We need women in the, the boards of directors. All these things. I don't think that in any way deals with the core problem and neither would Marx because Marx talked about that hierarchy being the problem. So even though it has that oppress oppressor template, it is fundamentally un-Marxist because it does not deal with the hierarchy itself. So what I would say is the part that he's taking from Marxism is the equality of outcome again. And so the right. fact that feminists, for instance, what we were talking about before we started the podcast with the uh, transgender uh, man who became a woman competing in MMA fighting women. Right. Like, that idea that they're fundamentally equal, that women and men are fundamentally equal, that, I would say, is what he's critiquing in the feminist movement. You know, they they want equality of outcome for women, when in reality there's a lot of psychological and biological reasons that they don't, they're not equally represented in various, uh, you know, Fields. Fields, yeah. So like Google, you know, for instance, it, the, this brings up the whole idea of that letter that the, the Google employee wrote. You know, did you hear about that? I did hear Where about that. This, he's, he's also in the intellectual workbook. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, so that guy was a Google employee, and they asked him, or they asked everybody what they could do better to facilitate women in the workplace and get more women to come work with them. And he wrote them a letter about it saying, like, these are things that would help. And he was very honest about it and very realistic about it and in no way sexist from my perspective. What are some of his arguments? He said that women are more social than men and they prefer to interact with people more. So maybe more group work would be a better way. People oriented as opposed to technical oriented. Yes, which is psychologically supported. And uh, I'm trying to remember the other ones. It was that kind of vein though where he was talking about these are things that we know from psychology and biology that are different in women. See, and there is this um, <clears throat> this interesting problem with the idea of uh, if, if anyone tries to say there's inherent differences between, you know, different groups like men or women, mm-hmm. people freak out. Yeah. Um, and I think that caution is certainly warranted. I mean, all you have to do is look at our history of sure. you know, saying, you know, justifying our treatment <laughs> of black slaves for right. various, you know, social Darwinistic reasons. Right. Um, but I, I do think that certainly yeah. can't ignore 
the fact that, you know, biologically there's, you know, certain predispositions, well, you, especially between men and women. It's, the thing is, is like, I think one of the biggest critiques that Jordan Peterson has is he's like, he's a personality psychologist, yeah. so he's done a lot of research <laughs> on the differences between men and women, and right. also just different, like, traits, and he goes into the idea that, like, if you look at, like, how the distribution of, he usually goes into aggression of, like, women and men, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. But if you go to the tips of who are the most aggressive people, it's men. it will yeah. always be men. And yeah. that's why there's so many men in prison. And so then he's like, okay, so it's do not you the only to... reason there's so many men in prison. <laughs> well, there's well, a huge problem there also. But Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that. Well, that's different. And he, all kinds of it's still men, though. But the idea huh. is that he was like, okay, well, that seems to be a pretty legit reason as to why there would be at least a greater number of men. Right. in prison Definitely. so Definitely. it's like okay so if we take that for granted then we just say okay if you want to do if you want to take your idea of equality of outcome and then you just change that to like should there be just as many females in prison yeah now <laughs> and literally he says like there have been he's talked to women who Who's are advocating for this who do advocate for that yeah, see, that's that's silly to me. Yeah, exactly. Just my own personal point of view. But, I think that's silly. But I, I but <laughs> the the big thing that I want that I think is important when it comes to like listening to Jordan Peterson about what he's saying is it's not like he's making this up. Like people sure. actually have that narrative, and yeah. he's like that Definitely. narrative is bad. Definitely. And yeah. and it is. I do think that it is difficult because it does come to that whole like he he has this. I wouldn't, instead of stereotypical, I would say like a pragmatic view of both postmodernism right. and Marxism, where totally. he says, well, how are people using it right now? And then totally. he'll just use the totally. word Marxism, and it's like, okay, or neo-Marxism, yeah, and he'll yeah. say, but it's it's actually how but, people are using it. But he it. will talk, like, I, I watched a lot of his stuff on Marxism, yeah. and he, he turns it into like this general thing, like, this is what Marxism is. Right. And he makes a lot of generalizations that yeah. obviously I, have problems with. I do right? think that what Drew just said is, is accurate, though. He's using it in the way that it's manifested, not Definitely. the way that it was theorized. Also, and I think that... Well, also, but he's not... He, I, it is manifesting in other ways, too. It's just not so loud and in your face, and so he's taking that one to task. I would say, like, the thing that I'm, like, definitely seeing, too, is that you don't like how he's using it because you're worried about people... Because he obviously defines it. He's like, if, if you like, like what you just said was right. he said, he generalizes it and then he'll define those generalizations. Right. So the idea is that you're kind of worried about the same thing that happened during like the cold war, which is socialism's bad. Yeah. And then right. everyone starts thinking that rather right. than actually looking into what's the occurring. The ideas itself. Exactly. Well, Trump, Trump, just, terminology. Trump just did that at his rally, like oh, with yeah. the whole like cricket Hillary, but he said like trying to get people excited to vote and being like the democrats just want social policies they want to social take your something. guns away yeah. like all these things without said, actually defending any of the arguments or understanding that like we have a socialist like we already have social policies within our capitalist society yeah. we're not 100 percent capitalistic for sure well he says all kinds of weird shit like he'll say that like you know with medicare for all they want to take your your medicaid like it's Medicaid, it's Medicare for all. Like, are you saying you're going to lose supplementary health programs we currently have in place in exchange for a universal, all-encompassing one? Well, bummer. Like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I but guess, it, yeah. They're going to take your Obamacare. Like, not that he'd say but, that. Yeah, there's the same idea where it's like you're getting more. Like, what are you? Yeah, there's something that I wanted to say about the uh, just the equality of outcome type thing. 
he makes Jordan Peterson makes a really good argument for why men are overrepresented in the highest paying jobs and you know like the top of the hierarchies and it, and what he says is that most so conscientiousness and uh, just like a like a, an obsession with your work mm. is way more common in men than it is with women. Right. So you have women that come out of law school, for instance, and they're fucking amazing lawyers. Like they're, they're working just as much as men, which is like 80, 70, 80 hours a week mm. to be at the top of that field. And they're working just as much as that. And they, they're moving up in the companies and they become partners and whatever else. But then there's, there comes a certain point in their life where they realize this is silly. Like I'm wasting my life. I'm not getting what I want out of it. And oftentimes they leave or they, you know, go to a a job that doesn't require as much of their life. Whereas you have these men that are obsessed with that and they use it as like this, this way to win the the social dominance hierarchy. And you can look at it from an evolutionary perspective. You know, men have a huge incentive to reach the top of some sort of hierarchy because it increases their ability to breed. Right. Whereas women can choose they, they made above and across on the dominance hierarchy. So right. they don't necessarily have to be as high on the dominance hierarchy to get a, you know, a mate that's equal or better than them on that scale. Quote See, and this is an interesting topic because then we have to explore, you know, how many of these characteristics are, um, if, if not entirely byproducts, partially byproducts of the societal constructs we Definitely. have in place. That's interesting. And I, I think that um, this is one of, Peterson's critiques of postmodernism is a postmodernist would say it's entirely constructs yes. causing it. Yeah. And then Jordan tends to lean the other way and say, no, 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 no. It's not constructs. There's innate things here. Um, I think it's definitely a lot of both. And I think that requires a lot of parsing through, you know, how many of these things are results of the institutions and the culture and the constructs we have in place. Yes. Are those things tilting it in favor of one group or another? There, there's things there, and I, I think that critique is valid. Um, but I definitely think if you're going to say, no, it's all constructs, none of that's real, it's all an oppressive institutional construct, I think mm-hmm. that's an extreme statement and not good. Yeah, so yeah, um, I agree. I, just, I think a lot of people tend towards that view, right? and I think that's kind of why Jordan Peterson hammers that point so much. For sure. Um, and then, um, so another point he make is he's, he talked about how, wait, what's up? Uh, it's just Will's phone was going off. Okay. Um, so another point he makes is he critiques the idea that um, society has been historically patriarchal. And the reason he says this, what he said was that, well, if you look actually in history, during all these times, men were suffering horribly as well. You know, he pointed to feudalism and said, you know, men were working in horrible conditions and barely scraping by and all this stuff. Um I, I think, again, he's overgeneralizing to try and critique feminism and the problems he sees in feminism. Because while that's the truth, very much true, that, you know, white men, whether it's in American history or European history, have suffered greatly under, you know, capitalism or feudalism, um, there has also been an intentional hierarchy put into place to keep the mass of people pitted against each other. So, yes, it was patriarchal in the sense that women had a lot of times a, a lower rung on the hierarchy than the men did, even though the men were still in horrible conditions. I mean, you see this very clearly in American labor history, where um, the main mechanism used was race, where they would, you know, select races to be in lower levels of the hierarchy to keep, you know, the white men 
going, okay, well, at least I'm not there. And to keep them satisfied that they have a little bit more and to keep them pitted against each other to keep that structure in place. I mean, there's a lot of examples in our labor history of them literally bringing in, like if, if labor was organizing too much, there was one example in uh, Hawaii where the Japanese labor force was organizing too much. And so the capitalists there uh, asked the government to bring in a bunch of, I think it was people from the Philippines or Indonesia, something like that. Anyway, to bring them in to pay them way less. So to put them in competition with each other. Yep. Um, obviously, with black people, it's been used the most. Um, that was like a huge part going into the Civil War was like wage laborers not wanting the spread of slavery because it was competition for their ability to find jobs. Right. And then once blacks were allowed in the workforce, it was, it was used still as like a competition hierarchy to reinforce those levels. Definitely. So, I mean, uh, that's like one of the really interesting things for that too, is like, I just watched the, the Eric's Weinstein and, and Ruben talking about how one of Eric's things, like his wife, Eric, Eric Weinstein's wife, um, did a whole dissertation because she was also, I think she's actually in economics. And one of the big things was like, they literally had a, uh, they had a bunch of the, like the government, the government's, uh, program for scientists Mm. were trying to get a bunch of, uh, immigrant scientists to come over so that they could make it so that scientists weren't even getting paid as much as they (laughs) should be. (laughs) <laughs> because they were doing so much development. Right. They were trying to keep their, their payment, like, their, their wages low. Right. So even that, too, it's like, there is, I think there are obvious, like, shows of that reinforcement of power structure and right. it not evolving. That's, like, what I think, like, one of the big things is, like, you obviously want, there ne- the, the idea that Jordan Peterson gets across is that you need a power structure so that people can have movement. And it's that really classic idea that it's the same thing with, like, equality of outcome. You need to have something... If it's not, if everyone's not equal at the end, there's obviously something that is making it so that they can differentiate. Right. So you need to be able to define that, but that definition needs to be adaptable. So I agree with you, but I also have problem with the way he presents it with, um, that, what's it called? Principle. Uh, Oh yeah. The Pareto disposition. Oh my God. But yeah, he, he, he seemed to be arguing in my mind that that inequality is inescapable. Mm. Um, inherently, whereas I think it's primarily um, a result of that hierarchical structure. So, I mean, so say if we had, you know, democratic workplaces well, putting in, you know, rules that like Mondragon does. So yeah. saying, you know, the person at the top can't make more than eight times the lowest. Right, right, right. So it's, it's way more self-contained. Totally, yeah, So, yeah. I mean, you can't eliminate inequality of outcome. Right. 100%. But the gross inequality in the capitalist system is a problem yeah and it can be dealt with totally and, and that's and he seems to steer away from that critique well i don't even know if i've heard any like that's why again mm-hmm. i would be really interested in seeing this debate between him and richard wolf because i don't know if anyone's ever like even budged on the idea that everyone should have more of an equality of outcome right idea right. where it's like the idea is like this is like the actual like scientific like uh results of mm. of the Pareto disposition uh, oh my god distribution it's actually that there are a small amount of people who do most of the work right so it's like and it's not it's like i think it might be a 2080 thing but, but it was showing in like any particular field and he talked about this where it's like 
So one way to deal with that is to have a diversification of fields because different people are just going to excel at different things. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's just human diversity for you. It's, totally. you know, why we did well in the wild as a, as a tribe with different people with different skill sets. Well, and it's why you want to also reward those people who do obviously give back to the society more than others. Like, that yeah. is, you know, that's that's what they're doing by doing that. So you have to be able to reward them in, in an appropriate way. And I think that's right. the thing that is, like, right. such, such a problem here is that the people who are doing a lot, they do deserve more. Yeah. Like, cool, like, you created computers. But awesome. You shouldn't make them, but, like, lords over society. No, yeah, that's the all. earth. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. That's, you know. It is, like, 80-20, by the way. It is 80-20? Yeah, for most things. Although it does change for a given system. So, well, I think that's why we need to get money out of politics so that it has less of an effect yeah. on have like yeah, when you have billions of dollars, you can literally buy puppets. To, I know, right? To play your game to you know, push your agenda. Certainly a huge problem. Yeah, so I mean, is that all you had on Jordan Peterson? I mean, there's a little bit more. Um, I want to wait till Drew gets back. Um, but just kind of reiterating one of my points from earlier is I definitely think this idea on the left of we just need equal societal representation at the top of these hierarchical structures is a silly idea. Um, I don't think it is fundamentally Marxist at all. Even So that's where it's like the neo-Marxist, the idea of like it's about the oppressed and the oppressor. But it's not about overturning the hierarchy, which is the whole point of Marx. Right. Yeah, I think definitely equality of outcome is just a nasty For idea. sure. I, I For think sure. that's it's a good point where we can all agree, and that's nice. As far as the way Jordan Peterson is representing some of these things, I agree with you that he could be a little more careful and maybe define what he's talking about more and try to diverge from the terms that he's using. Yeah. Because I don't think he's thinking of Marxism in the way that you are. And I think right. he's picking the points that have been used for certain cases right. and saying these are bad. Yeah. Um, and I agree with him in that regard. So another point, um, this, this isn't quite related, but it just kind of gets to the fundamental difference of perspective I'm always going to have with Jordan Peterson. It really gets to the base ideology. Is he did a little video talking about Rousseau. <laughs> and so Rousseau is like one of the foundational ideological points in the Enlightenment, if mm -hmm. you're going to talk about the current ideologies in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Um so one of the points Rousseau makes is the idea of the noble savage. Mm. Um, the idea that man is inherently egalitarian and overall morally good in its natural state and nature. Um, and his idea was that, so the, the most extreme um, immoralities of man are largely products of civilization itself. Mm. And so the idea that Rousseau posited with the social contract is to say that society must, all things considered, improve upon the state of nature. And so that idea is, whatever man's lot was in the wilderness as hunter-gatherers, society must net benefit the individual in terms of how free they are, what's available to them, to the, the overall state of their life. Um, and Jordan Peterson criticize this the whole idea that so his, his he posited that man is not inherently good mm -hmm. and he compared us to uh he, he talked about um like how vicious chimps are and oh. saying that's the state of nature you know man is inherently vicious and it is civilization which makes us better and this is something i fundamentally disagree with and you know i think this is a big part of the left-right divide so like chomsky also 
comes down strongly on the side of Rousseau in this discussion. And I think our work in anthropology backs this up. The idea that, you know, there's still, you know, bad things that occurred in hunter-gatherer societies. There's killing, there's rape, there's these things. But um, I think, yeah, yeah. But I think all in all, um, things are far worse right now. And that, you know, we're, we're, we've lost a lot of the most important things that we had as hunter-gatherers in our natural state that we need to rediscover. And, um, yeah, anyway. I mean, what do you think about that, Drew? Or Dwight? Go ahead, Drew. Yeah, I got a lot to say about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't agree with that. I think that's a really good with what narrative with Rousseau. I don't, I don't, I, I think that's a really good narrative to suit to like shoot for. But the one thing that I'm worried about is that that falls into like this kind of like mythology that there were like the good old days where we were great, and then right. where you, you got to be careful there. You can't overly idealize. It's also really past. easy to pick. And choose your tribe, right? True. You can look through all the tribes True. that ever were, and you can be like, "Hey, look at that one. True. That had a great idea where this was egalitarian and everything. Everybody seemed happy." But there's shit tons of tribes That's where true. people were not happy. They were essentially Some murdering very brutal. people over and over. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of examples of that. And I would say, as a whole, society has gotten much better than that in lots of ways. For instance, we're way safer than we ever were. People are way. Well, I mean, in the Western world specifically. Yes. I honestly think if you take the entire human population into account, that might not be true. But I don't know. Yeah, I that's don't know. actually that's not true either. Like that. Yeah, what you read. Well, um, well, that's actually one of the things that Jordan Peterson has brought up later. I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure in the videos that you've like that you've checked out, but it's like one of the things he has been called out on that before. Been like, oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the thing is, is, like overall in the world, there's way less infant mortality mortality than there used to be, and mm-hmm. there's a lot right. There, and this is totally not to say that we could be doing so much better. That is totally true. Well, sure. But the there's idea also is this that whole we're... thing of quantity versus quality. Is it's like, yes. sure, we're living longer, right. all these different things, but is the quality of life of the average person in the modern age yeah. better well, than living in hunter-gatherers? They say our work week no. is oh, longer yeah. today yes. than it used yeah. to be. You used to only have to work 30 hours a week. So, so, that's, so your yeah, quality of life anthropologists point to their higher, you know, happiness levels, which we talked about in earlier podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot to be said about tribes of old, you know, that I think they did have a lot of things going for them, but I would say overall the idea that we have moved backwards is just fundamentally. Well, see, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make that position. Okay. Um, there's a lot of ways where we move forward, mm-hmm. but I do think we have abandoned things that were very positive that we need to get back. Yeah, there are certain totally aspects of I modern totally civilized society <clears throat> that yes. uh, I think is worse than quality of life was as undergathers. And I would, that's I, all. I would agree with that. My sure. biggest thing about Rousseau saying that we're fundamentally good, and what was the other positive? So um, good and egalitarian, right? So I think the, the all biggest... All in all. Issues. So he, he was clear in his writing that it was like not yeah. 100%. But yeah, because there's lots of tribes that obviously weren't. Yeah, at if all. you looked at. He, you looked at the and, and we should we should be clear that he's his, 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 his positing this entirely from his research of the Native Americans. Right. So mm. this was during the time when America was cleansing the Native Americans. Totally okay. And it was during the rise of the Romantic period in Europe. Mm. And a lot of information about the Native tribes written by researchers was coming over. Mm-hmm. And so there was this. Um, emergence within the romantic movement of going, oh my god, look at all these things we've lost. Sure. We've gained all these things, but look at the squalor in industrial Europe. 
look at the war, look at all of this stuff, yeah. and you compare it to the life of a Native American, right. and you go, okay, some things are better, but we've lost some shit. Yeah, for sure. We need to relook at where we've come from. Yeah. And to say that, you know, um, the nature of man in a hunter-gatherer setting is a more noble one than man in civilization, I, I personally do believe there's some real truth to that. I guess it depends on what you mean by noble. And I, True. I would definitely say there's a lot to argue about that because yeah. nobility to me, it's obviously that's a, a difficult concept to even define. Yeah, that's real. But, you know, to say that that one state of living is more noble than another is a really hard to, thing to do. You know, to say that. And this is my own ideological baseline because yeah. I, I always am going to favor uh, more egalitarian sure. forms of society, you know, closer to nature. Um, more equality within the group. Yeah. Less for instance, hierarchical. Is it more noble to run around in the woods for 40 years and just, you know, hunt and gather and live your life free of, of essentially any otherworldly stress? Or is it more noble to, you know, live your life as a researcher forever and end up saving tens of thousands of lives because you made a new vaccine? Right. You know, so like so there's lots of noble think, things that people yes. do within our society now yes. that I would say are completely impossible under the ideas of... But I think part of this control. argument is you can't... Um, society produces a lot of extremes. So it's like For if sure. you're going to compare hunter-gatherer society, which is much simpler, yes. to civilization, you can't include the person who saves a million lives without saying the person who commits a mass genocide. Because both those things are qualities of civilization. But isn't Definitely. that evening out then? Isn't it, that, isn't it just I guess changing? so. But I guess a lot of my context comes from where the world's going right now, which mm -hmm. I tend to have a more negative view of it, especially with climate change and all these different things coming yes, down the road. That's a good point. Um, so you can't have this discussion without that kind of like, where's it going? Mm -hmm. The only way you could compare that argument, I guess, would be post-humanity. Well, you that's go, why... Did it pan out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I think, it, though, it is important, though, not, not to, like, idolize either the future yes. or the past yes. and just be like, what can we do better now? Yes, I and I think that's, that's what this is. Sure. Definitely. And I really do think that that's what that argument is hearkening to, is to say... Um, Civilization, in a lot of ways, has worsened us from our hunter-gatherer state. We should try to reclaim those things, reintegrate them into society, bring in the lessons we've lost. Yeah, that, that's I totally agree with that. Sure. Do you believe that humanity is inherently good? Is, um, is that... I don't. I, I certainly. Oh, it's so a tough one. anyone who wants to know the way I think, I'm a very moralistic person. Mm -hmm. All you guys know that. I, I think almost, mo definitely, mostly in terms of morality. Um, and I think humanity, um, especially in its natural state, which I tend to think of as the best representation of humanity, um, is more good than bad. So I do, I do. I guess we have to define good, but I mean, I see. <laughs> well, there's a whole god. <laughs> right. I don't uh, see as much different than like any other animal in nature, mm -hmm. and for like a lion I, I to think, kill I think a, we're more. I, 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 I mean, we have morals, morals, we have the intellectual case capability Well, there's more to... empathy, there's more caring about each other, inner relations. I mean, this is why... True, Sometimes there's a lot more suffering. It's know? true, but I, I think the, if the base, you know, the standard hunter-gatherer society... I feel like you have a very, very skewed idea of the standard hunter-gatherer society. Well, maybe so, but I'm basing most of my views... I mean, I do idealize it some, yes. so let me be clear with that. Yeah. But um, I also, I mean, this is most of what anthropology is teaching right now is that, you know, the base human hunter-gatherer society based off their research was it 
mostly egalitarian. Yes. You know, within their tribe. You know, that's and then the when they thing. met We're somebody from another certain. tribe, they might time to a post and cut little bits of flesh off for right. hours, hope and waiting for there them to scream. Brutality. And then they would well, kill them if they screamed. That's the problem. So within our small <laughs> groups, hunter gatherer groups, we had that family. We right. had yes. like we treat each other but with respect did. and love. Yeah. But if you're outside of that group, yeah, we're gonna torture you. <laughs> we're gonna kill you. We're gonna do whatever we Rape want. Your but they did also. I mean, for just from what I read from anthropology, they talked about how um, most conflicts that occurred between hunter-gatherer tribes was generally a direct tit-for-tat, as opposed to like ideological or like constant. There were cases of that where tribes had this long history of hating each other, mm. but for the most part, it was generally like, well, this tribe took our horses because they needed horses. Okay, well now we're gonna raid them because they did that, mm-hmm. and it, it, it was much more um, less less brutal than current human <laughs> conflict for sure. Um, I'm not trying to. I would say it. I would say the only thing that makes it less brutal is the scale. That's what I would say. I, I because think, I think in I think many so. ways it was way more brutal. I don't know. I don't know if we've. I, I think we do plenty of horribly more brutal stuff now. I mean, I guess you could argue that's just a matter of our power and knowledge of how to be brutal. But, <laughs> well, it's also the disassociation that we're allowed now. I mean, when we have right. drones that literally just can go blow up a building, we didn't see anyone die. We I would feel confident in saying that the average hunter-gatherer was more moral towards other human beings than um, if you looked at society as a whole now. They definitely but, had a certain gravitas with their with their actions, right? Because yeah. if you killed someone, you did it right there. Or if you helped someone, you did it right there. But whereas... it's hard, too, because you also, in society now, you have, like, you know, the mass of people, especially in, like, America, who, who just kind of go about their day. Mm-hmm. And then you have, like, the mass slaughter of our drone program. And it's like, how do you... Is that an extension of us? Is that, you know... So it's like, yeah, so the actions of our states yeah. are far more violent than things used to be. Yet the actions of the individuals within that state might be far less. That's actually really not difficult. true either. There's been so? less, like, less people dying due to wars than there was in the, like, percentage-wise. Mm. There's less number of violent, there's less violent crime that occurs now than there did even, like, 40 years ago. Oh, well, yeah, that's all in the context of civilization. But wouldn't you agree that that is, like, but isn't that, all right, so we're now talking, we're talking between groups? Um, so are you saying civilization is less violent now than it used to be? Well, I'm so also trying to understand what it is that you're necessarily speaking about. Are you talking about how people, tra- how, how individuals treated other groups? Or are you saying how they treated people within their groups? I think he's comparing mm. hunter-gatherer versus civilization. Right, and, but, but you guys have brought up the idea that if they capture someone, they might torture them mm. or whatever. Right. That's what a between group, yeah. in, in like right. a conflict versus an in-group conflict. Right. And also the numbers uh, for like killings with drones are relatively small. I mean, over the course of multiple right. years, we're looking at several hundred, However, a thousand, you know, which is not right. something that would be unreasonable for several Native American tribes to commit in a matter of the same amount of time. Um, yeah, one of the biggest problems with our drone program is how much of it is civilians. I mean, it's like upwards of 90%. Uh, the same thing happened with hunter-gatherers, though. You know, you'd have one guy go and steal 40 horses, yeah. and then their entire tribe gets decimated. Because Although of, that was right? I mean, that's... Um, less often than, like, actual clashes between warrior groups. The sure. most common form of tribal clash was groups of warriors. Right. And then if they lost, they would go in and rape all the women and kill them all. Well, I don't, so that was, like, that was that's a, civilians that was right there. Rare. Dead. Yes. Yeah, you know? For sure. 
It depends. I mean, I think it's really important that we don't try to overgeneralize what it was to Definitely. be in Hunter Gather. We need to know a history okay. time frame. We need to know what, yeah. like, yeah. you know, it's like, I think we're being a little bit too overgeneralized <laughs> here. But. I think that's really fair. Um, I guess my main point is to say that I, I agree with the premise that um, we've lost really central um, good things about humanity from our hunter-gatherer times that we need to reintegrate into society. I would want to amend that, that there are certain tribes that had really awesome principles that we could take from. That's what I, I agree, but I, yeah. I, I also mean just general, like the general characteristics of hunter-gatherer groups. Like the Mongols? <laughs> the Mongols were a nomadic warrior group. Uh, yes, but they were, they were hunter-gatherers still. That's what they did. That's how they survived. And then they became warriors and they organized, right? So, I mean, there's lots that's, of different... That's, that's like more of the... So so when you look at the development of society, mm -hmm. hunter-gatherer evolves into like chiefdoms. Sure. And that's a different thing. And I think Mongols would be under chiefdoms. Okay. Which is usually like a war-based, more hierarchical than a hunter-gatherer group. Because it's about raiding, specifically. Yeah. It's, it's that's their primary mode of gathering. Well, it's also Whereas a hunter gatherer common raids thing. are more of a side thing. Yeah, it's very common. However, when a hunter gatherer runs out of resources, that they're yeah, they're for trying sure. to just go. But through. again, that's like because of a necessity, not sure. their baseline. Also, civilization is definitely not a linear thing. Yeah, and, yeah, and you know, very true. I wouldn't say that our baseline is going and you know killing a bunch of people. Yeah. Either. We have we have maybe contrived ideas of why we do it, and we have. There's a lot to be said about the reasons that we decide to kill other people, but right. it's not as if we just have this baseline of murdering people. Yeah. Dude, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, the only reason why I'm saying I don't know right now yeah. is because, like, wh what are we doing? Like, are you specifically I guess we about have to America? Clear, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm talking about America. It's like, yeah. what are we doing? We do have some wars going on, right? It's true. I mean, what, maybe like we're not. Of them or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and we're not doing our infrastructure. Actually. I think it's seven actually. Just it's, <laughs> totally. And we're not working our infrastructure. We're not. It's kind of like it's like what are we doing? Well, this we don't gets know. back to empire again. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I do would agree with about uh, I guess what we're missing yeah. that maybe hunter gatherers had even chiefdoms even I guess if you just go back into history a little while yeah. it's like we don't have a lot of like face to face contact with each other. Our yeah. social like. Yeah gatherings are more on the internet than on in real life like we don't really know we don't have the experiential um evidence of yeah. what's going on what yeah. we're doing totally. why we're doing it it's all in this kind of like yeah. meta platonic kind of view where it's mm -hmm. like even our economic system we're supposed to and like uh, again it's very you know myth mythological but it's like we're supposed to have this idea that capitalism gives better growth and so even us having a capitalistic system or a democratic system, those are just good things. Like, by us having them, we're good people just by contributing to them. Like, but even, even though you don't analyze what is being grown, for what purposes, dude, well, what's the cost. The, the bummer part is you don't even necessarily experience that. I can't, like, you know, it's not like if you walked up to someone and says, like, do you think that you're a better person because you contribute to democracy? They would have to sit there and think about it. It's not like yeah. It's not like you fed someone food that was you know they were starving and you gave them a piece of bread. That's like I helped diminish that person's suffering. That is very nice. It's very abstracted. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, real quick, getting so like one of the main arguments that Rousseau draws from the idea of the social contract, mm -hmm. which um, you know, uh, putting aside kind of like the nuance of hunter gatherer versus civilization, 
the idea that society should be an improvement upon the state of nature mm-hmm. overall. Otherwise, what's the point? We should just go back to living in the woods. Sure. I agree with that. And so drawing from that, Rousseau says, any social arrangement that constrains the free internal creative capacity of the individual is inherently invalid unless it can justify itself being for that greater good. And yeah. I completely agree with that. I would be okay like that. with that. And that's yeah. the idea of like anything that infringes on the individual is part of that social contract. Sure. And if it's not improving upon the state of nature, so it's net good uh-huh. from that original state, then it is inherently oppressive well, and invalidated. Well, not quite, because it's also saying that you would have to have a justification for it. So you're, you yes. can definitely diminish someone's rights as long as it's benefiting everyone as definitely. a whole. Right, like that's you diminish totally your right okay. to murder somebody because it's bad for society. Exactly, but uh, or we or we put a tax on carbon because you you know yeah, it's, it's yeah, important to continue definitely. the world. Uh, but you get a one, one other business, thing I wanted to know? say about that, but we should really move on because we haven't even yeah. Made, and I need Paris. to um, let's let's do something where I'm going to talk less because I just, <laughs> but I apologize uh, for my prominence. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say though, I think it's. For the purposes of looking at what we can glean from those, you know, quote unquote, natural societies, right. I think this, this you could say you could make a case that this is a natural society as well. But true, and I anyway, don't mean natural. Saying but yeah, saying that the original. Well, yeah, we'll that's, that's kind of like too. a yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing you have to define because you know natural state. Well, you could say this is our natural state because what other <laughs> what other state is there, right? But saying you know being a hunter gatherer was better, quote unquote. I think it's important. You know, we can look at some of the best tribes that we have knowledge of and try to take their values. But when you're comparing that to what we have now, I think it's only fair that you compare it to the best societies that we have now. You can't just compare it to... I agree that you have to compare it to both. Just like the overall state of civilization as Mm -hmm. a whole. And where it's going. Yes. Well, I guess my my point is that to say that, you know, people are less happy, Mm -hmm. people are more constrained, work longer hours. Saying all that, you're comparing their best society to one of ours. And that's like us right now in the U.S. Whereas I would just compare that to average to the average. Well, then I think we win 100%. That's what I would say. I I don't, so that'd be worth worrying about. We should look into it more. Because there's two tons of tribes. The other thing, too, is to... I mean, it is fine to compare... But this is where I do actually think abstraction helps mm. because we say, do we think it's good to like make it so that everyone has a good amount of resources that they're that are available? Right. Is it good to have good like drinking water that's readily available, yeah, food that's sure. readily available, like sure, sure. that stuff? We can all just say yeah, and yeah. then we can look at our society now and be like, do we have those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes or is no. Is it good to be close to nature? Is it good to have an egalitarian? It just seems more productive than <laughs> than the comparison, but right. comparisons also help us right. form what those are. So that's true. But too. this but is worth talking about in the sense that this is one of like the roots of different ideological divides that comes from the Enlightenment. Yeah. So we, I think see, we should talk about it on another podcast. For sure, actually. we, we can actually get into Enlightenment ideology. Awesome. Yeah. Do you guys have anything to say about that before we move on? Because I wanted to talk about Sam Harris. No, I do. Oh, right. I'm going to feature a lot in that one, too. Okay. Yes, you are. I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I guess we can't talk about it yet, because Dan no, has no, to wait. You can, you can do your intros about him and stuff. Yeah, well, I want you to hear it, too, though. Okay. Do you guys know anything about Sam Harris? Yeah, he's, like, one of the ones I listen to. Do you listen to his podcast? Or? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like him a lot. I think he has a lot of really good ideas, and he thinks really clearly. 
do you know like are you do you want to give the are you going to give an intro about who he is sure because you that. could probably do that now. yeah so uh for those that don't know sam harris is a neuroscientist and how long did he study so he went over to india and he studied is it india or is it uh, i think so yeah so he went over to buddhism. one of the buddhist countries and he studied under buddhism under buddhist monks for what was it like three years it was three yeah um, and so he's done a lot of meditation and a lot of looks at meditation. And now he's, he more functions as sort of a philosopher. He just kind of, uh, he does, he's written a couple books and he talks a lot on his podcast with like various people about philosophical topics and just sort of things in the political dialogue and his feelings on that. So he's more of like a political commentator and a philosopher at this point in his life. I don't really know how much he contributes to neuroscientific research, but I know that his stated interests lie much more in moral philosophy. Yeah, when it, like the, the main thing about he got a bachelor's in philosophy, which got him really interested in values. Mm -hmm. And then he became a neuroscientist because he wanted to use that technology to be able to do it. So his uh, PhD was basically, and like him working in the lab was trying to distinguish which brain areas actually uh, functioned for values. Nice. So he would interview people and like try to figure out whether or not like certain brain regions would be more distinct during evaluations yes. uh, versus like mathematical. Like that. So that just gets into his really interesting research. Mm -hmm. So That's cool. yeah, I would recommend definitely looking into that because he did do I some really do cool in, uh, research in that. Yeah. So I think one of his biggest talking points and one of the things that he's the most well known for is that he's a huge critic of religion, in particular Islam. Uh, mostly dogmatic interpretations of those, but he is pretty anti-religion in general. And uh, that's one of the biggest clashes that he and Jordan Peterson have, honestly, is that Jordan Peterson thinks that there's a huge amount of value in religion, whereas Sam Harris thinks that there's value in it insofar as it's a philosophical text and there's philosophy within it that can be useful, but he thinks that it's fundamentally weaker than other sources of that same philosophy and that you can find better representations of those philosophical ideas from other sources mm -hmm. and that the sort of deifying of the text inherently makes it worse. Right. And uh, I tend to agree with him on that. I, I think yeah, me too. I like... I like that Jordan Peterson actually did like an in-depth look at Christianity from a psychological perspective, and he actually has those lectures online, which are pretty interesting. And I think there is definitely a lot to be gleaned from that, and it's very interesting from a historical and psychological perspective. But I would agree with Sam Harris that if you want to doubt, like to dive into philosophy, it's far better to do it one knowing that you're reading the thoughts of people <laughs> and not some deity, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So to think it's that, an yeah, to think yeah. that a, a deity wrote these things is pretty silly. It's not an abstraction. It's like the abstraction, right? The yeah. abstraction. The <laughs> there is no yes. abstraction other than this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I think Jordan Peterson's idea of God is very interesting, and in the way that he talks about it is really interesting. But I think as far as trying to orient your moral values and to think of philosophical ideas it's much better to treat to do that with phil, uh, philosophers and what they've written so anyway that's sort of my view on his views of religion and he's actually written a book with uh majid noaz or something i can't say his name but about islamic reform because islam is the one that he thinks is the worst because the quran is so difficult to interpret in a way that's not violent and inherently divisive and he points to that as causing a lot of huge problems in a lot of Islamic communities and I would 
tend to agree with him in that regard as well. So, yeah, I would say overall I agree with him in a lot of ways on a lot of things, but there's certainly some political points that I don't agree with. Uh, and we'll get into some of those in that when we talk about gun control if we get if we get there today. We uh, better. We gotta get all this shit. I know started. we got a lot of shit. Where are we at time wise? It's twelve thirty right now. Sorry, ten thirty. You're the one with the actual time. I mean the religion thing. Oh, I yeah. agree with Sam Harris almost completely, but he wants to restructure Islam versus. I think we. I think religion overall is just outdated. Yes, I agree. And I think we have to. I think naturally we're gonna move on, but I think the okay. sooner the better. Yeah, I think his his sort of argument, the way I understand it, for restructuring it is that the way that we've moved into a more secular, or not secular, so secular, secular <laughs> society, society, man, secular society. So, there so, we so, go. So, so, so. <laughs> uh, the way that we've moved into a more secular society in terms of Christianity was by sort of incremental reform in terms of you know taking away. Oh, we don't really look at the Old Testament anymore. Yeah, and, and then it's it sort of evolved naturally i think that he sees that as a fundamentally more likely route for reform rather than islam not done that not it's like really at all holy yeah. scriptures that they don't touch they haven't really reformed it as all as far at no. all as far as i know i mean we're considered the most christian nation in on earth america <laughs> is so well but, that's that seems wrong because i know that uh orthodox christianity is really big in russia like they have the kind of thing with uh with like Killing gay people and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying that there aren't going to be more Christian, like, more extreme Christian people in Russia. But I mean, actually, like, our, the most politicians, we have the oh, most politicians okay. who say they well, are like Christian. It's like 70 or 80%. We just, I mean, yeah, the, the population, of say that. So the population exactly. of, like, how many people believe in these things, I think, is the highest right. here. Um, Russia is a much more authoritarian society, so maybe that manifests in a in a more extremist way. Yeah. But that's kind of another one thing that I, I generally tend to have some problems with, with what Sam Harris talks about is it seems to me like he thinks all of the extremism arises from the ideas within the text itself, which I think is, there's a lot of truth to that, but I also think it has a huge amount to do with the material circumstances of the culture at that time. So, I mean, you know, um, Islamic fundamentalism certainly has seen an enormous increase with the American wars in the region. I mean, terrorism has gone through the roof since we invaded. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's way higher than it was before we invaded Iraq. And so, you know, there's also that when you destroy the, um, the secular institutions and you, you make people's material circumstances so desperate and so filled with despair, they're going to be much more susceptible uh -huh. to those extremist <laughs> ideologies, you know, especially as a source of revenge or sure. because they're hopeless and they, they need something to do with there themselves. Definitely that. I, I'm not Another, denying that that happens. One, one more point real quick is they did, <laughs> sorry, they, they did a, I forget when, but the United States did a poll um, of people in the Middle East showing like, what is the primary, um, motivation for terrorism and it came out as primarily political yeah so that shows that at the very least that's a huge component and it's not just about the ideas within the religion itself i do i can see that for sure but the one thing that the reason why i even brought up us being christian the only the, the reason why i brought it up was an example of this is like one of the most christian nations mm -hmm. at least like if not the most one of the most but like muslim 
nations are like decidedly they are islamic like you have right. the hijab right. being necessary yeah. they're more theocratic exactly yeah that's yeah. obviously but we so. should also know that that has that has an you know so like iran for example was far more secular until we overthrew their democratically elected government put in an authoritarian shah <laughs> and then in response to him cracking down on the population in a totalitarian way there was an islamic revolution because in that state of being oppressed, those Islamic extremists were much more, um, the people were much more susceptible to those messages yeah. because they were so angered by that. But I mean, they were turning into a Western culture. They were wearing American style clothing, even the women. Yeah. And then there was this theocratic revolution in response to us seizing their government. So, I mean, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Real. That's, yeah. that's an example of what I'm talking about. Not to say that's across the board. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that I wanted to point out is that part of the reason that terrorism went up when we invaded is that we overthrew Saddam Hussein, and he was kind of he was a pretty secular ruler, and he was holding down a lot of the mm -hmm. religious extremism. Mm -hmm. And then after we killed him, it sparked a civil war between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Well, we should also note part of that is part of our occupation tactics is we literally separated the different sects into different parts of the cities. We intentionally separated them. It was part of our war strategy. So, I mean, again, these things don't happen. There's meddling. That's a contributing factor. So, I think this is an important conversation, but I don't know. Like, it is a very good critique of, like, how the U.S. has obviously done awful things in their foreign policy. But the thing that I would, if we're going to, like, talk about Sam Harris, I right. think the one thing that he would probably we say... We shouldn't stray too far into the yeah. side shit here. I think one of the things he would say about that is that if there wasn't the Muslim religion, of course, he goes into his, like, right. crazy, you know, right. like, just remove this, which is, like, not useful, <laughs> not pragmatic. But it's like, if it wasn't there, would there wouldn't have way? been, yeah, there wouldn't That's have been extreme. the easy material to be like, oh, well, there's a holy war. You know, it's like, oh, well, That's if you fair. go kill everyone, now you get to go to, That's you know, fair. paradise. But, I mean, one could almost say at least from the point of view of the country dealing with that interference from an outside power, yeah. they might argue that that's a good thing. Maybe that's a, a defense mechanism against, you know, outside invaders is like at times of, you know, great stress, we become jihadists and then... <laughs> totally, but that's... I mean, that's Afghanistan's never been successfully, you know, held indefinitely. Maybe that's a part of that. Yeah, this is going to get really... Not that I'm saying I'm justifying that at all. I yeah. think it's and still overall overall way negative. Well, it's going to get messy, too, because it's like, well, the the reason that we went over there was because of some Muslim extremists crashing planes into some of our buildings. See, but so, I disagree. And I know, I know, I know, I know. It's hard because I don't know... See, and there's a that's actually something with Sam, too, yeah. is that he is very much on the narrative, like, in that way. He's like, this well, is one of the main critiques of him from the left, is he seems to parrot the establishment narrative about our foreign policy decisions. And so a lot of those critiques of him say, well, you're doing that because you've selected this group, the Islamic religion, as negative. And you're, you're now being tribalistic. You're not, you're not um, when, when you justify American foreign policy, you're not looking at both sides equally because you're just attacking the outgroup in your mind. Yeah, reinforcing. Right. Any yeah. of that he already has. Well, I also think that he has a good point when he does some of that, though, in that 
to to just completely argue for pacifism in the face of terrorism seems silly. I disagree with that. So yeah, so that sure. seems to be a lot of the ultra left what they would argue. You know, it's like let's just leave them alone. There, it's not our problem. Like we can't go and police them and control them and tell them what to think. Right. But then it's like okay, well you have people, you have entire nation states that support the you know clitorectomies. And support stoning gay people. And well, the irony is that know. the very worst offender in terms of a state in that regard is Saudi Arabia. That's where yeah. the most extreme sect of Islam comes from, and they're one of our closest allies well, for purely he, power reasons. Sam Harris is a huge critic of that, though. which I I applaud him for. That's yeah. very very good. I think this gets into like what I was talking about when we were talking about the comparisons between the like the hunter gatherers versus the civilization. It's like. I think there's a hesitancy for, like, the left who, I think, most of the time thinks of themselves as the more progressively moral and they want to have more, like, moralistic thinking. Mm-hmm. It's like, they'll be like, yeah, let's talk about, of course it's not okay to say no that you can't have an abortion. Like, no, that's not, we can't have a law that says that here. And then they're like, yeah, because we, like, that's morally not okay, right? And it's like, yeah, that's totally not morally okay. And then they're like, okay, but then we look at this nation and they do this thing that's like way worse. They do geni- like genital mutilation, and they're like, "Oh well, that's their choice." And it's like, See, but yeah. but we said it's not morally okay. That's so can't we just say that it's not okay for them to do it? But this really does get into the whole conversation we had last time about imperialism and uh, multinational government. Because like my personal belief is, I, I never agree with um, unilateral. Um, interference, direct interference in other nations. Real. Yeah, I would agree so, with that too. So, um, I would say that kind of thing should be called out. Yeah. It should be attacked diplomatically, economically. Real. And if anything is physically done, it should be part of a coalition of states. Totally. Um, but, well, yeah. We invaded Iraq with the mostly... Only the British joined us. All, like, the UN voted, it was, we violated the, the way the UN functions mm-hmm. and that the UN actually said no to it. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time the US violated the UN framework for for inter, like interference because it was a national which was a huge UN. blow to the legitimacy of the UN <clears throat> yeah. it's kind of like the beginning of like the blatant you know uh, era of american imperialism sure. so what what would you advocate for doing in the face of someone like Saddam Hussein where we I mean, you can question whether or not we actually thought that he had WMDs, but... Well, first of all, connecting that in any way to 9-11, I think, was atrocious. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. make mean, any sense. So, that was that used is. as the justification for the invasion, A. Yeah. We should note that um, the people who were the architects of the invasion, like Dick Cheney, um, they, they authored some paper, it was called, like, uh, the, the New American Century, and it was after the Cold War, they were trying to say, like, okay, what's the next era of American power, now that we're the sole hegemon? And it, they talk about how we would need a new Pearl Harbor as an excuse to project American power and cement American hegemony. That's where you get all the conspiracy theories of yeah. 9-11. See, I, 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 have no posi- I, like, I have no position about 9-11 being an inside job or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, but but so... <laughs> clearly, like, it could be, it could not be. Yeah. But clearly, we use 9-11 to further our geopolitical aims that had nothing to do with the, the reasons we cited. I would agree with that. I would also say, just on the point of 9-11 being a conspiracy, the idea that it was somehow they, like, snuck thermite into the buildings <laughs> so that they could... Like, the idea that steel doesn't melt at a high enough temperature or whatever. Yeah. All you need... That's just a misunderstanding of the physics involved. All you need to do is uh, heat something up and its yield strength goes down. 
and they've seen that in many cases where you have a fire and it heats up the metal that was holding up malleable. the building and it makes it more malleable yeah. and then all of a sudden it can't support the weight anymore and they had a lot of cascading problems where uh, some of the, the beams were hit and damaged and they also knocked some of the fireproofing off and then uh, so anyway the it's completely and, yeah. yeah it's completely plausible that just that plane knocked it down I've always tended to thought that 9-11 was totally legit <laughs> Um, maybe there was some problems in terms of not trying to stop it as well as we could, whether sure. it's bureaucratic or intentional. Yeah. I tend to think it's still bureaucratic. If there's going to be a conspiracy, I think it makes the most sense to have it in that regard. Yeah, right. we just clearly chose to, like, retaliate. I yeah. care so much you know? about how we used it, it to was, justify our actions afterwards. Yeah, so that's sure. the real conspiracy, and we know it's true, so. It's just like, moralistically, we're okay to start a war now. Yes. Yeah. Like, I don't know why we should focus on, like, these unanswerable conspiracies instead yeah, of the very sure. real implications of the real events. It's I like, just wanted to mention that because... For sure, that is Because I'm actually thing. an engineer, and so I can say with pretty pretty good certainty that, like, I understand what happened. I appreciate you <laughs> I always see those super, like those memes being like, well, jet fuel can't burn yeah. steel beams. And You're like, right, it can, but it doesn't need to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, um, as far as us using that, to further our own power and to, like increase the power of our government even domestically, I I definitely think that's reprehensible. But I also wonder what you guys would posit as a, a reasonable response. Um. Well, first of all, we should have disclosed the identity of those who participated, which were mostly Saudi Arabians, and there should have been serious political ramifications in that regard, pointing out the extremist nature of the Saudi Arabian government questioning our alliances with them, things like that. Um, I, I agree with a general anti-terrorist, you know, terrorist, um, you know defense system or whatever, you know, dealing with that as a threat. But um, the idea of, like, unilaterally invading countries in the Middle East, I think that's only made the problem worse. It just... Um, for me, it, like it, it clearly clearly shows that these people they decided they were they were Muslim extremists, right. right? And so it's one of those things where it's like this is a clear example of what happens if they become extreme and why you need to make sure that they don't. And well, let's they... let's also talk about the fact that uh, or what's his face uh, Osama bin Laden was a U.S. asset trained by the CIA during the Cold War. We literally still use fundamentalist Islam as part of our geopolitical strategy in the sense that the whole underbelly of Russia is the Middle East, and there's a huge percentage of the southern population of Russia that's Islamic. And one of the key American strategic points is to radicalize the Islamists under Russia to cause societal discontent. So, I mean, we've used radical Islam We've perpetuated it as a political strategy totally. multiple times, including the very person that caused 9-11 to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we have a lot of responsibility. Real. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, because, again, I'm trying to, like, more stick on the, the ideas that Sam has, which is, like, okay, the, should, the moral... Yeah. <laughs> we have about yeah. it. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I mean, it's all right. Like, those are good facts to know, yeah, and it's, right. like, it is clearly, like, questionable what right. we did. But, uh, or just bad. The, uh, but I would say that, like, you can use that example that, like, that they did do something so extreme as a reason why you need to pay attention to those morals and say, For these sure. are tend to be extreme. For and sure. when they do, or that, yeah, they do tend to be extreme. And when they are extreme, they can lead to crazy amounts of violence. Yeah. And so, 
they're probably not ones that we should continue. Yeah, the, I listened to the Joe Rogan with him and uh, Majid Nawaz was the guy that he worked with. Wasn't uh, he? He used to. He was he a radical Islamist for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to remember his his arc. He goes into it a little bit in that. But he actually went to Egypt for a while, and he was living there, not doing anything shady that I am aware of. And then when 9/11 happened, they imprisoned him for five years or something mm. like that. Just because he was Islamic. So anyway, he's he comes from an extremist background and he's trying to reform Mus, uh, Muslim Islam. culture and yeah. Islam in general. Uh, but what I was going to say about that is just that the extremist problem is definitely a problem, but a lot of people point to how small of a, a percentage that mm-hmm. is. And one of the things that Sam and, and Majid both talk about is that Extremist Islam, like jihadism, is a problem for sure. But also just normal Islam can be a huge problem. For instance, in the UK, Muslim people in the UK were polled. And they asked them if it was okay for people to have gay marriage. Mm. And 0% said yes. Mm. Zero. Yeah. And around 50% of them said that the attack on Charlie Hebdo mm. was valid and warranted. Which is crazy, yeah. And that's in the UK. So that's not even in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. So there's clearly something wrong with the ideology at play. Right. And I think that's mostly what Sam is trying to say. I agree now, with that. And what, I think, go ahead. what he parrots about foreign policy and his, you know, maybe unwillingness to question the motives is, I would say, it could be seen as a huge problem. And, and our contribution to, to certain, you know... Yeah, I do, I do think that a lot of people like Noam Chomsky tend to blow that up more than is maybe I think that's fair possible and he actually speaks to that um, and he says that yes I focus disproportionately on that Mm -hmm. but his reasoning for that which I I appreciate and personally I like that reasoning is the idea that um, as an American first and foremost we're responsible for what our own nation does and we should be disproportionately focused on our own nation because we can have more impact on that Mm -hmm. you know criticizing you know Islam. What can we do as American citizens about that? But criticizing what we're doing, we can have a much stronger impact mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So that that's kind of like his main justification for focusing on sure. the problems of our own country. One thing that I find interesting in sort of response to that is one thing that Sam Harris recommends as a sort of a response to Muslim extremism is to get off of oil, to revamp our economy. That's super fair. That's a good one. super fair. We're completely, yeah. you know... Uh, no way. Uh, well, no that's... way would we do that. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I well, like that. I mean, definitely should. I agree, but there's... But... <laughs> well, that was in the global... That article about the global warming. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, we have to revamp yeah. our economy. Coal has to drop we... to like 6 to 7% or something one like that. to 7%. Oh, 1 to 6. They're saying well, we essentially have in the 2020s to stop, to have net negative carbon. Which is not going to happen. Are we going <laughs> to... I mean, that is true. It's probably yeah. I mean, we could use this as... I, uh, I think it's a clear thing. There's more of it, Sam Harris. Let, let's go to the climate change thing right after this. Okay. Yes. But we yeah. should... Sam Harris deserves a little more of our time, I think. I agree. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that argument for what we can do mm-hmm. to help Muslim extremism is valid. And I think that it makes sense to talk about it in that context of like, this is a problem, we need to fix it, and here's a way that we can fix it that also solves this other tangential problem. I agree. Um, I think the reflex with the left, Mm -hmm. um, which is done in, I think, a a not very good way in the mainstream, some intellectuals like Chomsky, I much more agree with his reflex with it, 
is a reflex against the portrayal of the Islamic community by the American foreign policy apparatus as kind of like a net green light to interfere in that region in any place for any reason mm -hmm. because of a general boogeyman of the Islamic terrorists. Right. You know, we use that boogeyman to go into Iraq, even though that particular intervention made no sense within the context of dealing. We're, we're, we're using Islamic terrorism as the justification, but we're not actually trying to deal with it. And in fact, in many circumstances, we're making it worse. And so critiquing that kind of um, scapegoating is an important part of understanding the dynamics there. I think if you take it too far, um, which a lot of mainstream leftists will do, um, and say, like, don't say anything bad about Islam, mm -hmm. that's silly, too. Yeah. Um, but can't really escape silliness with yeah. regular people a lot. I agree. Yeah, so the things that I wanted to say about Sam Harris were that is that he, which I already mentioned, is that he's often misconstrued. Um, he is taken out of context, yeah. and he goes on these long thought experiment trains, and then people just grab onto yeah. one thing, uh, like nuking Saudi Arabia. We should talk about that which, for sure. Yeah, so it, I didn't even let's, I let's didn't, get into I that. didn't even see in the quote anything about Saudi Arabia. I was nuking some Muslim mm. place. Yeah, uh, I should actually pull up the quote because yeah, that'd good. be that'd be good. Um, but basically, that's not at all what he was advocating for. But what did you want to say about that? Um, well, I think it would be better to read the quote out first. Um, but, well, I guess we're just going to get into it. Um, it was Richard Wolf, is that right? Oh, no, Chris Hedges, right? Well, I didn't even, I didn't even um, hear like Chris Hedges talk about it. I saw the quote online somewhere, but I guess Chris Hedges. Because Chris Hedges and him debated, and that wasn't part of their debate. But Chris Hedges has talked about it afterwards, I've seen. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, he talks about... Just the, do you have the quote up? I do. Okay, go ahead and read it. So this is from The End of Faith by Sam Harris. It says, There's little possibility of our having a Cold War with an Islamist regime armed with long-range nuclear weapons. A Cold War requires that the parties be mutually deterred by the threat of death. Nations, nations of martyrdom and jihad run roughshod over the logic that allowed the United States and the Soviet Union to pass half a century perched more or less stably on the brink of Armageddon. What will we do if an Islamist regime with... Uh, which grows dewy-eyed at the mere mention of paradise, ever acquires long-range nuclear weapons. If history is any guide, we will not be sure about where the offending warheads are or what their state of readiness is, and so we will be unable to rely t on targeted conventional weapons to destroy them. In such a situation, the only thing likely to ensure our survival may be a nuclear first strike of our own. How would such an unconsiderable act of self-defense be perceived by the rest of the Muslim world? It would likely be seen as the first incursion of a global genocidal crusade. The horrible irony here is that seeing, seeing could make it so. This very perception could plunge us into a state of hot war with any Muslim state that had the capacity to pose a nuclear threat of its own. All of this is perfectly insane, of course. I have just described a plausible scenario in which much of the world's population could be annihilated on account of religious ideas that belong on the same shelf with Batman, the Philosopher's Stone, and unicorns. <laughs> that, that it would be a horrible absurdity for so many of us to die for the sake of a myth does not mean, however, that it could not happen. See, I have a lot of problems with that. It's, like he, it's like he personally responded <laughs> to his own thought experiment in the same statement. It's he almost did. like at the end, he like got really personal about how he felt about that. So I think that's really the only part he really like fucked up with as far as that goes. Because well, my problems with that, there's a few problems I have with that. So okay. first of all, um, talking about a regime. So we we need to differentiate. Are we talking about like a rogue terrorist group 
like ISIS getting a nuke, or are we talking about a state, an Islamic state getting a nuke? Like Iran. I mean, he yeah, just like says Iran or Saudi Arabia. He just says Islamist regime. Regime so. makes me think a state or a government. Um, and I think the I, the characterization that he's doing of kind of like an Islamic extremist, I don't think would hold up in terms of um, a government. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it, it really might. But I think the vast majority of the time, those in those positions of power yeah. are not going to operate on those principles. They care more about sustaining their power. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the actions of the Saudi Arabian government, it is in no way in line with you know, rapidly, like, the, the Islamic religion that predominates in their region. I mean, they, they have these big orgies and all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> and, you know, they, they'll work with the United States, yeah. and they care about money and their power and all these different things. Um, also, if you had a problem with a nuke-bearing enemy that wasn't going to be able to have that detente, a nuclear first strike would never be the option. I mean, you, you'd send in, you know, something more targeted to deal with the threat of the nukes itself. And I just think the saying that a nuclear first strike would be um, justified is it, just so irresponsible to me, especially within the context of the anti-Islamic fervor of American foreign policy. Um, I, I really just, I, I, yeah, that blows me away. I, I don't think that would happen in an Islamic government. I think they would, you know, care about their continuation and their survival. Um, and if we were to need to get rid of their nukes, I think it would be a more targeted operation, not nuking an area where we would kill untold number of civilians. Well, no, what about defense, too? You know, it's like a, it's <laughs> as if, if they got a nuke and if they used it and shot it at us, like, it's not like we're, it's like an unstoppable force. Well, right? his, I mean, depends. His but, premise was that it was, but that's guess, because yeah. that was his thought experiment. Also, you know, yeah. So, first of all, the regime is specifically a government, especially an authoritarian one. Okay. So, so I mean, we look at Saudi Arabia or North Korea. I mean, these people, when you look at their history, they take actions very much based on the fact that they want to stay in power. Yeah, they're not self-destructive. I agree with that. I think the purpose of this thought experiment is to understand how much of a threat it could pose. And maybe that's unfair because of what you're saying, that if they were to take over an entire state, they might not act like that. But I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that if ISIS could pull together the resources to make a nuke, they would try to. And, that's that's fair. And so but again, it's not, they, we're not ruling out, I don't think it's fair to rule that out as a possibility because I think they I could agree. try to do that and we could face an instance where we're looking at something, some, some organization that possibly does have those values right. at heart and does that's possibly, true. maybe not possess, but are working towards mm -hmm. the possession of that type of um, technology. But even then, I don't think the response would be to nuke them. I think it would be, like I said, a more targeted situation. Sure. Whereas when you're talking about like a built-up nuclear state like Russia, mm -hmm. if we were going to try to deal with their nukes, we would have no option except to nuke them because their nuclear facilities are so integrated yeah. throughout their society. It's this whole thing. That's true. Um, you know, whereas if it was an Islamic state, you know, first of all, they'd probably be more of you know a decentralized you know organization that wouldn't necessarily have like that strong, in, like infrastructural yeah. foundation. Um, I don't know. Just the <clears throat> just throwing out there, yeah. nuclear first strike. Totally. I mean, you need to be so careful with that kind of shit. And even yeah, if I agree. even if you would further clarify this, I just I think it's really irresponsible. Yeah. And within the context of these other issues with him dealing with our foreign policy and the, I don't know. It just, it just 
his views on Islam concern me as approaching a, uh, a form of fundamentalism. Yeah. Well, okay, so a couple things about just nukes in general. First of all, the biggest thing about nukes is getting the material, the actual mm -hmm. radioactive material, and isolating it. So, for instance, uranium comes with two isotopes, or maybe even three isotopes, that are really difficult to separate from one another, mm -hmm. so you typically need centrifuges, and you have to do this over a long period of time, and then you have to worry about storage and all these types of things. So that's where we really detect whether nukes are trying to be made, is in these facilities that are enriching uranium or right. plutonium. And uh, as far as, like, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be able to make nukes because uh, I feel like a lot of people think that it's a technological jump and I think that's pretty naive because with a couple short Googles on the internet you can pretty much figure out how to make a nuke. It's not that hard. The, the concepts are not that difficult to make well, from what I read, the nukes. really hard part is like the intercontinental ballistic missiles. That would be that's really difficult. significantly harder. Yes, for sure. Uh, you know, the, to the be rocket able to project science, range the with, rocket science that yeah. involved with that is <laughs> very complicated. Rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, yeah, exactly <laughs> rocket science. Uh, so anyway, I think a lot of people have that misconception where making a nuke is hard, and that's wrong. Getting the material to make a nuke and getting the nuke where you want it is the are the only parts that are difficult. So with that said, I think what Sam Harris is proposing here in this thought experiment is that these people have we found out that they've been enriching mm. this uranium, and so we don't really know where like how how close to being ready these nukes might be, mm. and so it's potentially possible that they would already have one. And then the, the idea that they have a nuke is really scary for a lot of reasons because maybe they can't get it as an intercontinental ballistic missile, but right. they might be able to, you know, drive it as a, in a truck somewhere and get right. it into a city. So it's not necessarily that they could, you know, annihilate us or right. get it to where it would actually hit us, but that it becomes a huge threat in other ways. So, again, I think that's not impossible to poke holes in this logic and that he is <laughs> cherry picking a lot here but and I generalizing think, with literally the most destructive weapon on the planet <laughs> i think well, i think and the generalizing problem here, the islamic religion well i don't think that's unfair though i think he's he's pretty correct in that but he's this. saying that all because he's because i mean isis is more of a it's a radical group but he's saying that isn't he saying like any like that's pretty much india with any Islamic country that has a nuke is pretty much self-destructive. He said an Islamist regime, but he does say which grew, grows dewy-eyed at the mere mention of paradise. So, so, so very extreme. He's yeah, positing is, a, a highly extreme regime. It is regime. definitely a very extremist yeah. regime in, the, in that regard. So I think the biggest issue here is what happens to Sam Harris a lot, which is where people don't like the thought experiments that he creates, and right. they latch on to a lot of these problems that we're picking out. But... My interpretation of this is that he's pointing out that these regimes could have really significant negative consequences, and they right. can they can get much worse than what we have now. So he's trying to make the case that these are things that we really, really need to deal with. He's not necessarily saying that this scenario is right. Now, I think he could be a lot more careful in doing that, and I think he should. And I agree with you that at, you know, like even you know, tangentially advocating for a nuclear first strike is not a good idea. Yeah. Even though he's saying, he's specifically saying that in the context of how ridiculous that right. would be, right. I, I agree that it's kind of irresponsible yeah. to do that. See, but, like, I could see so easily with kind of like the, uh, you know, 
the war fervor in you know the American establishment, especially right now. I mean, there's a lot of neocon war hawks in the Trump administration. I mean, John Bolton is like a psychopath. That guy wants to topple every goddamn government on the like. He wants to topple Iran. He wants to topple North Korea. He's like a fervent war hawk, American cool. imperialist to the core. Awesome. Um, and um, I mean, I could see this kind of argument so easily turn into like we need to nuke Iran right now. You know, with the like, if you just look at how they're talking about Iran right now, they're yeah. they're wheeling up to go to war with Iran very, very slowly, and they canceled Iran the, the nuclear Iran. Well, no, they're the most but we capable made the Iran of deal. making nukes. That's what we yeah. made. We had the Iran deal with them, which the entire international community said this is a good framework for stopping them to get a nuke, mm-hmm. and it's going to ramp up the more that we you know let go of the sanctions and all these different things. Yeah. And Trump canceled it, and is now ramping up war talks, re-implementing sanctions. I mean, they're, they're moving to go to war with Iran for yeah. geopolitical reasons. I think Sam Harris would be extremely critical of that. Probably. From what I know. Probably. Yeah. But that kind of um, overgeneralized argument against Islam, well, I think he has a lot of really good points. I'm just so focused on how that's being used by our imperial apparatus mm-hmm. that it, it just really makes me uncomfortable. And I, I don't think he looks at that enough to kind of um, take that into account. I mean, like, I was watching um, an interview with him on Joe Rogan, and um, he was, like, critiquing some things an independent journalist, Abby Martin, who yeah. I like a lot, was saying about him, yeah. um, and the Iraq war and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, Joe Rogan asked a question where he was like, well, have you seen, like, how much, you know, like, how many civilians are killed by, like, our drone strikes and stuff like that? I wish I looked at the context of um, that surrounding argument, because mm-hmm. I think it was really relevant. But um, he essentially said, no, I haven't looked at that. And, like, that kind of thing, it just seems said, to me that he doesn't look at yeah. the other side of it. Like, how are we causing it, these things to occur? It, he sees it in a vacuum because he's looking at Islam as a religion, as the source of all the problems. Yeah. Well, he, in my I mind. Think you're, I think you're extrapolating a lot from I that. am. Because, yeah, let me just because be clear, he said, he said specifically that he didn't know the number. That's what he said. Right. So he, he's aware that we kill civilians, and he knows that for sure. Mm-hmm. But he just didn't know the number, and right. he didn't want to say, right. oh, yeah, it's this percentage. Right. So I think he's completely aware of that, but he was in that context. He was critiquing her generalization of the Iraq War and saying that we killed two million people and how that was she's, a huge overestimate. Yeah, and, those are like the highest possible. Yeah, yeah. And and she was she also the far end of the yeah, numbers. And yeah. she was just saying a bunch of shit that about him. So he was getting yeah. maybe a little personally yeah. attacked. But she did he first. Didn't like she that. did first. Um, and so I think he was mostly trying to get at the points that he felt she was being unfair. That's fair. And she, so I don't think That's he was fair. focused on that part yeah. of the drone strike. But it, the overall context of that was the morality of war as it's waged now. And him right. talking about how there is a certain amount of collateral damage that's incurred in war in general. And so saying like, I don't think he was saying that the drone strikes are morally justified, Mm -hmm. but he's saying that to think that war could be waged without collateral damage is idealistic and and it's just not going to happen right now. True. But the numbers in the drone strikes, I mean, I think it's 90% civilians. When the the drone report that came out of the Senate, it was like vast majority of the deaths were civilians. And there were videos that came out of our drone strikes where they would strike a target and then they'd leave and they'd wait for first responders to show up and then they'd bomb it again. There were videos of that that got leaked. And I mean, it was fucking insane. Like, there's there's a part of our drone strategy 
that is a terror campaign. It's not just trying to eliminate the targets as you know carefully and as isolated as we can. And this was an argument that um, when he got an argument with Noam Chomsky via email. Yeah, so they were debating. About this. Yeah, we should talk about this. Uh, I think Chomsky but, was really flippant with him, and it, uh, yeah, it did bother me. But um, before you get into that, though, yeah. this this figure of ninety percent that you're pulling out was from the Intercept. And it says, you know, nearly 90% of people killed in recent drone strikes in Afghanistan, quote-unquote, were not the intended targets of the attacks. So that's what it said. It doesn't, that, that doesn't necessarily say civilians. But not the intended but, target. But yeah, which, not the intended target, I mean, which is a lot. still awful. But that's also this one report, and there are other reports that are different in terms of the okay. amount of percentage. So we can't necessarily even, say that it's 90. If it's even 60%, that's That's disgusting. really high. That's really high. But it's also where, this is in the context of, uh, you know, People that will specifically use civilians as cover. That's true, and so that's, that's something point. that that Sam Harris talks about, where he's he's like, when you have a situation where one side of the war will use civilians as cover because they know that it will be effective, and the other side wouldn't even think of doing that yeah. because they know one that it wouldn't even be effective, and two that you know it's morally wrong right. then you have a huge discrepancy in just the moral values already and so to equate them moralistically just because we're killing I agree with that is really wrong for sure and that was the i think that's the par- the problem that uh, Sam Harris has with Noam Chomsky as well is the the moral equivalence problem okay yeah so um, so let's get into that yeah so <clears throat> one of the things there was um, Chomsky was saying that what we did to Iraq was worse mm-hmm. than what the uh, Sudan they're talking about Sudan. The well, they Sudan. talk about Sudan further in the conversation. But it starts off because Chomsky had, in earlier things, talked about how what we did to Iraq was worse than what happened on 9-11. So that's how the conversation starts. And then they get more specific talking about Sudan and the Clinton administration. I'll have to get into that email because what I remember specifically is uh, Sam Harris critiquing Noam Chomsky's book that he wrote after 9-11. Mm. Specifically the passage where Noam Chomsky says something about Al-Shifa and the bombing of that, and how it was worse than 9-11. So that's I'm what I'm pretty sure that was one of the examples they go into, but I'm, I'm fairly certain early on in the conversation they start with talking about the Iraq war being worse than 9-11, according to Chomsky. Alright, so, we're back. <laughs> okay, done some quick reading on the emails between Chomsky and Harris. Um, Which you can find on Sam Harris's website if you're interested in yes. reading more of their exchange. Um, so... I had to, I had issues. I, I mainly came down on Chomsky's side in this um, discussion in terms of like the morality of it. One of the things Sam Harris brings up over and over in the email exchange is the idea that you can't make a moral equivalency between what we did and what was done on 9-11 or mm-hmm. other examples of that kind right. because our intentions are different. So um, one of the things he brings up is that if we had perfect weapons... We would not, like, weapons that could kill exactly our target and never a civilian, that would be the case. That we would never kill civilians if we had perfect weapons. Um, And that because of this, because our intentions are good, and it is simply the limitations of our weapons and the inability to use these weapons without causing collateral damage, we're not as morally responsible for those deaths. Mm -hmm. Because we don't intend to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think this view, again is a problem where I just don't feel like Sam Harris understands um, the nuance of American geopolitical foreign policy. Um, he assumes always that we have the best, not always, but he generally assumes that we have the best intentions. 
um, and that you know we're trying not to kill innocents. You know, in all these scenarios, we're always taking that into account. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that is at all the case. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's you know the invasion of Iraq, or you know the amount of non-targets killed by our drone program, or um, our willingness to put you know totalitarian dictators in place in exchange of democratic regimes that don't agree with us in Latin America. I mean, it just goes on and on and on where we are willing to use the most cynical strategy to achieve our ends and there's tons of collateral damage and it's not in my view that we are trying to our heart, like to our greatest possible exertion to not do that. I mm -hmm. don't think that's the case. And yet his argument is based off that. His whole moral argument is based off the fact that our killing of innocent people is inadvertent. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is not our intention or, or that we're trying not to do it. I think, you know, at best, we um, were willing to turn a blind eye to it, and at worst, we actively used it as a weapon. In, in many, many, many of our foreign policy decisions, you know, since World War II through today. And, and you know, the idea that um, we're not morally responsible for the outcome, or not as morally responsible for it, because our intentions were better, I think is uh, immoral. I think that's a very immoral position. I think you need to, you certainly need to account for intentions, but you know, even if you have the best intentions, if you kill millions of people, that's, you killed millions of people. You should have acted in a more careful way or chosen not to act if you realized you couldn't contain that, unless the circumstances were so dire, you know, that you really couldn't be warranted not to. Um, and that's why I really don't like that argument. And again, Chomsky is always going to be focused on what have we done because his whole philosophy is about holding our own country accountable. Right. Um, yeah, anyway. Well, first of all, I'd like to make a distinction. If you grant Sam Harris's assumptions, which I recognize you disagree with, right. if you grant those assumptions that we weren't trying to do that... Okay, so assuming we have the best intentions. Yes. Okay. Then what would you say about his moral argument? Do you agree or disagree that you can't draw moral equivalence there anymore? Um, I agree you can't do a moral equivalence, but I don't even necessarily think that's what Chomsky was doing. I, I don't think he was saying it's, it's um, equivalent so much as I think he was trying to say that what we've done is worse because of the scale of damage caused. Mm -hmm. So even if we do have perfect intentions, if the scale of the damage is so much greater, I still think that makes us um, morally inferior even if our intentions are better, because we did not do our diligence, due diligence and take the responsibility for using our power um, in a way that would cause that much collateral damage. I mean, that's part of the responsibility of utilizing power. Can we at the very least say that we should apologize for the civilian deaths? Like, be like, that's that wasn't what we wanted to do. That was a bad thing that we had to do, but I, I felt like we had to do that. Or some kind of reparation... Yeah, you know, something like that, you know? That's a, a, like, I can't say that it's like, oh, well, our intentions were good, and so that makes it so that it's okay. You know I mean, the I mean? argument really gets down to, you know, intentions versus outcome. And I think even if your intentions are perfect, mm -hmm. the outcome is still, in my view, more important. I mean, it, it, it certainly they're both important. Yeah. But, you know, perfect intentions, they're still dead people. 
And you can, you can, you I don't, can justify it. I don't but... agree that it's more important, though. Because if you intend to kill millions of people, and you do, then that's right. way worse than accidentally killing them, in my mind. So, I... I like what Sam Harris says in this regard because he says intentions are important insofar as they tell you what a person is likely to do in the future. Right. So if you intend to kill millions of people and you successfully do that, you're likely to do it again. But if you don't right. intend to and you accidentally right. do it, your likelihood is much less. And he, he brings up an example of, you know, a person, like say you have someone in your house who uh, is, you know, helping cook with you and then they turn around and accidentally stab you. Right, that as compared to somebody on the street who walks up and stabs you and is trying to kill totally. you, the intention tells you a very important thing. What are they likely to do in the in the meantime, you know, so or in the future rather, because the person that stabbed you on the street is going to try to kill you. I definitely think that's a good point. Um, that being said, another moral principle we have to acknowledge is that power infers responsibility, and therefore, the more power you have, the more morally responsible you are for the use of that power. So, if we're just wantonly you know, accidentally destroying millions of lives. Right. Because we have that power, we have a higher moral obligation to use it responsibly. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the other other thing that I also think that Noam Chomsky points out in many of his other talks is just how much we can actually trust the narrative that our government gives us. Well, you see, that's, we're we're in another world right now. We're Mm -hmm. not talking about that yet. We, I, I do want to get to that, but okay. right now, you're right now talking about the moral. Right, it does get into the question okay. of intentions. What are That's, the actual intentions? Yes, exactly. But, but we did want to talk about. Yeah, that. we're talking about gotcha. it in the perfect case of gotcha. of granting yes. Sam okay. his his yes. ideas, Thought. right? Okay. So, uh, and I, I recognize that it might be weird for people, but um, just for now, I want to nail down what we think about that, and then okay. we can move on after that. But um, basically, so in the event that we were right assuming that we were right that they had chemical weapons that was that happened to be at a pharmaceutical plant that they were pairing those two things so what what then is a real you know is a proper response maybe i could i could certainly see and um put you know a a really good argument for bombing the plant at at, in the middle of the night like we did and then after that having realized that we stopped giving them the drugs that they need much better gotten otherwise i can definitely see a huge argument for that much better and i think that uh it's reprehensible that we didn't do anything in the face of and the lack of addressing the collateral damage sufficiently yes shows that our intentions are not what we say they are because if they were as Mm. honest as what we claim yeah then we would pursue that much more Passionately, you would think. I could see that. I, I don't know that that's necessarily an if-then statement you yeah. can make. I think it's a you know right. that makes more sense. Right. But I would right. say there's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> scenario where they had great intentions and then they fucked up and they were like, "Well, I know my intentions speak for themselves. I don't need to be groveling at their feet." But I'm not saying that that was a better that yeah. the response they well, should. But that's like the weird. That is the weird. <laughs> high ground that like we even started the whole Iraq war on which is just that we have a high ground like they attacked us first so we have the high ground of attacking them back and then it was like well they have WMDs well they did it it's just like (laughs) it just seems like that's I don't think that that should be morally advocated for like that's like if someone aggresses you then uh, yeah then maybe you need to retaliate but you don't do it like wantonly you do it because you feel like you have to and you be that's that in this case with the Al Shifa bombing, yeah. they did bomb an embassy mm-hmm. before yeah. us, okay. and so it was considered a retaliation right. attack where we were destroying their chemical weapons plant. That's what mm-hmm. it was said to be. Okay. And, and at best, we did not sufficiently um, 
address the collateral damage that our actions caused. So, I agree. And I would say that Sam Harris would also grant that point. Right. I just think his biggest thing was that it seemed like Noam Chomsky was saying that those were morally equivalent, and he disagrees with that. Mm-hmm. And I agree with him. It, uh, you know, granting his assumptions that that it wasn't that we had pure intentions. Right. I think that matters. I think that's more important than Noam Chomsky was alluding to. Mm. And so that would be my main agreement with Sam Harris in that regard. And I think he's right to bring up the importance of intentions. And and this is going to get into our own personal moral code. Yeah. Um, I tend to fall more on the side of, you know, being far more concerned with what we're doing because it's us kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the responsibility we have given the power we hold. I think being more concerned and more responsible for that is different from drawing moral equivalence, though. I agree. Okay. I agree with that completely. Excellent. Um, yeah. Now, insofar, like, moving on from the thought experiment, we, I, say, I, I would say we both agree that intentions are important yeah. and that so here we it get... shouldn't be a moral equivalence. Yes. But... but at the very least, both outcome and intentions are important. Yes, agreed. Yes. And I think Sam Harris grants that as well. Definitely. He agrees that the outcome is important, too. Just that the intentions can't be just brushed aside. Right. Now, going into what he actually believes about, you know, the narrative that is put yeah, forth. He seems to grant that we have good <clears throat> intentions, yeah. which is where I immediately get my hackles up. Because all my understanding of American history shows that, you know, we, especially in, you know, third world countries... We are more than willing to use the most brutal methods available to accomplish our geopolitical aims. Definitely. And, you know, specifically in the Middle East, the atrocities of late have been very alarming. Well, that's a big thing is we don't value life over there as much as we value it on our... But that's how empire works. Uh, getting an empire. That's but how even psychology like... works. <laughs> You're in group. The people in your group are definitely weighed higher than the people. Yeah, because it's like us in Europe is like if anything happens to either of those two, it's just like crazy. Like more, you know, our problems with yeah. It. They look like us and they sound like us. So. It's like oh yeah, we bombed a hospital in Iraq and yeah, there is a <laughs> huge problem with really us shit. Well, not caring about people who are. The more different they are, the less we care. What you define as your in-group, that is malleable. You can say, yeah. I'm a human, and so I care about human life. Not, See, yeah. I'm an American, so I only care about American life. Like, my, that's my, a choice my in-group that you can is make. the common people, the, the universal human experience. Yeah. That's my in-group. Totally. My out-group is generally those in uh, concentrated positions of power which seek to control the masses. Yeah, that's, that's and I my do think and it, it, and <laughs> Like, we do have to admit that it becomes more complex and when it comes into a wartime. Because then you have to be like, well, this person's attacking me, so I go into a different mode in that time. Right. But, yeah, I think there is... I think that there is an ability that we should be able to distinguish between the people who are going to be aggressing against us and the civilians of the... You know, that are kind of just in the area mm-hmm. of those of those aggressors. Yeah. So, that's why I would say the apology and stuff. That mm-hmm. is obviously... the. And- I, I definitely agree with you on the point that the you know the more power we should come with the more responsibility, right? I mean that makes sense, and I think we have a tendency to wield it um, without thinking about that, yeah. you know. And well, if anything, I think there's also an ideology around the idea of the opposite, which is like we're the biggest dog on the block, so we can do what we want, mm-hmm. which is saying we have less responsibility because we're more powerful, right? Which is deeply immoral and i disagree with that as well 
Yeah, and and I do think that's that, very much manifested in the whole Trump ideology. Yeah. That's the I think that first. was like the high ground that I was talking about yeah. too. It's like, and, and I agree that you know everything that we've done in the Latin American countries and top one government makes right all of that kind of stuff is really reprehensible, and most of the time it has been for our own interests and against the interests of the people there, which is fucked up, and we we should you know a lot of that was done under the guise that we were trying to subvert communism and you know doing the cold war we needed to make yeah. sure that you know they didn't get too many countries or whatever yeah. but it was a lot of hand waving in that you know it's like oh they're becoming communists or, yeah. uh, and it's a lot about da, 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 da. you know strategic or economic interests yeah and you know you can see that very clearly with the overthrow of very democratic governments whether they're in latin america or the middle east yeah. to put in authoritarian dictators yeah. as long as they bend u.s economic and political interests totally. which really you know puts the lie to the whole humanitarian notion of our hegemony yeah it is an empire it's about power totally it's about you know maintaining the status quo and yeah. anything that upsets that no matter how <clears throat> democratic or good for its people if it upsets the balance of power we've established they're mm-hmm. the enemy and yeah. destroy them i agree but so I think we're getting away from yeah. talking about Sam yeah. Harris, which is fine. Like, I, I well, we are talking about the intentions of U.S. power. Yeah. Well, I think the one of the biggest things too is that if we can make this deduction from like the the actions of America, it also comes to question whether Sam has like really See, analyzed that before really siding with America. That's what bothers me. Is like in him claiming that our intentions are good, it seems to me that's where it starts to get tribalistic to me. It seems he's picked teams. And one team is bad and the other team is good. And that's that's what I sense from his argumentation in, in an email exchange like this, is that he has that tribalistic view about it, yeah. which makes me very nervous. Well, so specifically with the email, again, there's this kind of contextual problem that he yeah, has. Sure. Because he starts off the email exchange mostly just trying to nail down what Chomsky thinks yeah. and trying to debate this one point. And Chomsky keeps throwing out all these other things that he wants Sam to address. And Sam is kind of like, well, I need to get this figured right. out first. But he doesn't ever say Chomsky that. Chomsky was not. And so Chomsky is like jumping on that like, you still haven't answered this. And he's saying a lot of really like. Chomsky was not being conducive to it. No. He was being a dick That's in nice. a lot of ways. And yeah, yeah, he was an asshole in a lot of ways. He was like, <laughs> he was like, you still haven't said this. And he said a lot of things that. I mean, there gets to one point where Sam is basically like, I urge you to, you know, look at how you're responding here because I don't think that, this like, your like fans would appreciate yeah. the, the tone that you're taking with me here. And uh, it's, yeah, it's very well, interesting. I should read those for sure. It, it, it's a good exchange to read for, for that reason, I think. Um, but anyway, all that is to say that I think it's hard to get a good representation of what Sam Harris really thinks on all this because he was trying to drill down on this one point. Mm. And so I feel like a lot of what he brings up in in that is mostly just about that. Like, he's right. not trying to, to disseminate his entire view of foreign policy and right. how the American government has behaved. Right. He grants a lot of what Chomsky says, in right. fact, about how reprehensible we've been yeah. in the past. And so I think in just in this particular case... He finds it difficult to believe that Bill Clinton, you know, organized that strike knowing that it would kill that many people and not caring. Like, that just right. doesn't, that's just not what he thought happened. And I think it's fair, and, and, you know, 
in single cases like that to, to hold that kind of perspective. That's fair. But I think overall, means, overall, I do think he is critical of how we, you know, throw our power around. And I, I think he talks about that in other cases, you know, cool. other parts of the book. And, and Good. so I, I would say that it's, I think partly what's going on is a misrepresentation of his views. That's but fair. I would agree that he probably hasn't looked into some of these things as much yeah. as maybe would be better if he yeah. did, you know. And I, I do think... <clears throat> an underlying theme in Sam's responses makes uh-huh. me feel like pushing him on his views on American empire and American foreign policy yes. would be good. I agree. That's, that would be awesome. I'd love to hear him talk yeah, more about that's, that. That's, that's and there's really actually good. some talk of uh, him doing a podcast with Chomsky. Apparently Chomsky oh, has said awesome. something about that. So like Sam Harris oh. actually went out and asked, you know, he tried to start this email exchange and it didn't go well and he basically aborted it. But apparently Chomsky has said something about maybe being willing to do a podcast with him. And so, I love it. I love it. Yeah, that would be sweet. Be great. I, would be, I would be very interested to hear It'd that. be better in person than over Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I think what happened was Chomsky read what Sam wrote about him, got very defensive and flippant, and it yeah. just was not conducive to discussion. That's what I think happened. Yeah, this one email here uh, is from Sam Harris is like, no, I'm hard-pressed to understand the uncharitable attitude, really bordering on contempt, conveyed by almost everything you've written thus far. What is it adding to the discussion? If you want some disinterested feedback, we might pass this exchange along to Lawrence and jo- Joanne, as you suggested below. I believe they will echo my concern and tell you that you are not doing yourself any favors here. Your last email is as strangely prickly as the others. If you haven't written <laughs> about my work, why not just say so, rather than act like you've sprung a trap on me? I never assumed you had written about me. In fact, I assumed you hadn't. So what is the point of this reciprocation business? Yeah. And, you know, so it goes into that about like how he's just kind of being a dick and he's not sure why. But uh, anyway... So yeah, I would love to see them talk in person and hopefully yeah. break down some of these these walls that they, they set up and couldn't get. Oh, it's all yeah, and it's very classic for you to become like way more critical and defensive if the person's not there. Yeah, right. definitely. Um, so before we leave, um, public intellectuals and political commentators. Yeah. Um, real quick, just for those interested in the kind of left wing perspective um, that I'm talking about, my two favorites that I think are on the more reliable side. Um, so, Secular Talk with Kyle Kalinske's, I, I think that's very good. Um, one that's um, done by a comedian, so it's a lot more commentary than news, Jimmy Dore Show. I think Jimmy Dore's great. Both of them have been on the Joe Rogan Show, so you should check them out on Joe Rogan, Kyle Kalinske and Jimmy Dore. Um, they're great as far as commentary goes. Um, but yeah. And okay. And I would like to add to that that I really like Brett Weinstein a lot, and I think listening to his talks is really informative. He's awesome. got a lot of really good stuff. And I sent both of you, both Dan and Sean, uh, a clip from him. I don't know if you guys watched. Yeah, it. I list. I, I didn't get all the way through it, but I started with just the whole, uh, the whole like day of walkout mm-hmm. stuff. So that yeah. was, that was there's really a lot to there's a lot to know there. I, I'd actually like to send you guys uh, a talk that he gave that was basically about like a reflection of that, and mm-hmm. I think we should talk about that. That's actually something that Chris recommended that we talk mm-hmm. about on the podcast. I awesome. think there's a lot of really good commentary on the left in there and mm-hmm. just the, the current political climate that we can um, get into. But I am excited about the idea of these more <laughs> um, leftist thinkers getting involved in this intellectual yeah. network because <clears throat> now that Joe Rogan has had on Kyle Kalinske and Jimmy Dore, yeah. Jimmy Dore has interviewed Chris Hedges, he's interviewed Richard Wolff, 
and now Richard Wolf knows about Jordan Peterson and is challenging him to a debate. So yeah. I'm oh. really excited about this kind of, uh, you know, richening of the discussion. Another interesting thing, now that we're getting nerdy as fuck and getting excited about possible debates <laughs> between intellectuals in the future, apparently uh, Brett Weinstein might be debating Richard Dawkins on the uh, evolutionary uh, advantages oh, yeah. of religion. Okay, another really good awesome one. One of the best um, debates I've ever seen was yeah. between Chris Hedges and Richard Dawkins. Okay. Talking about religion in general, that was absolutely incredible, and and I think um, Chris Hedges did a good job poking through some of the holes in kind of like the new atheist movement and its blind spots in a way that most people aren't able to. But anyway, check that out. I thought awesome. that was really good. Yeah, the new atheism I think goes a little too far in some critiques, but uh, we can also yeah. link all of the stuff in the video. yeah yeah anything we, we mentioned I'm gonna put in the description so Excellent. just go ahead and look down and I'll put them in order that we uh, mentioned them sweet I'll send you some links uh, cool so I think that's about all I had to say on the intellectuals on I, the, I like the Weinstein the first topic yeah <laughs> I mean it obviously branched into a lot of other topics but yeah. holy fuck yeah we're slow. And we are definitely going to have to table some of this. So I guess the, the next question would be, what should we try to cover next? Because we may only get one other time. We'll We're at two and, and a half hours. Guns? Okay. Um, Wait, does, oh. Harris, does Sam Harris talk about guns? He does. Um, he actually has a full podcast where he kind of outlines his views on guns and gun control. And then he has another one where he has a... Um, he has two other ones that kind of talk about violence in a tangential way. So he has a blog post on violence, which uh, I'll, I'll give to Dan so he can link. And I think it's a really, really sober look at the world and how, like, mostly the U.S. world, I, would sh I should say. Uh, but just, like, the possibility of violence, the, you know, recourses that people should have ready and the sort of perspective people should have of violence and how to deal with it. Uh, I think he goes. He does a, a really good look at that, and then he has a podcast with Jocko Wilnick, which is a, he's a former Navy SEAL, and he's so that's an interesting perspective on the Iraq War in mm -hmm. one in one regard, and also uh, on violence. And then he has another one with uh, a guy named Scott Reitz or Reitz or something like that, who is a former SWAT officer, and he talks about it from the sort of like the police standpoint and how um, guns and gun control sort of talk they talk a little bit about that but also they talk just about oh you know how the police are thought of and that kind of stuff mm. so i think that was a really good uh look at that we too. should definitely do a whole thing just on criminal justice <clears throat> that would be excellent but that's like gotta to be another that. day but yeah i mean if we want to do guns that i'm totally down for that i got a lot of shit on that i think that'd be a good one to do um another one we should do if we don't do it right now at least after guns is um more on censorship because, especially speaking of public intellectuals, mm -hmm. there's a real risk here that some of these people are going to start getting censored. I mean, they've already name-dropped some of them, talking shitty about the, the intellectual dark web in yeah, articles. Yeah. Um, this most recent thing was like 800 American like bloggers or content creators were purged from YouTube and Facebook. Jesus. They put out a New York Times article saying something like, now Americans are taking moves out of the Russian playbook on disinformation. So they're tying this McCarthy's oh purge God. now. Into, they actually hurt, like they deleted yeah, the accounts. Yeah, and, and That's so many of them had nothing to do That's with Russia scary. at all. So like things like um, uh, anti-war pages were taken down. Pages that post about police brutality what in the, the United States were fuck? taken down. Um, and also right-wing thing. Right-wing uh, and left-wing. 
And now, you know, people like Jimmy Dore and Kyle Kaminsky, who are anti-establishment, are saying, like, dude, we had to check to see if our page was still up. Jesus. Like, this wow. is getting bad. That's really well, bad. Well, I know, like, YouTube and stuff has been doing that to, like, radical right yeah. or left. Yeah. That just any radical group, but they haven't been taking them down, but they've just been getting rid of their ads. ads. See, yeah. but that's yeah. how it started. It yeah. started with YouTube Apocalypse, yeah. where they started demonetizing people that talk about controversial topics. Right. You know, and then it moved into the Russian purge where, you know, Russian bots and stuff like that. And then there was the algorithm purge by Google. So anti-establishment sites, you know, lost like 60% of their traffic because algorithms would like deprioritize non-establishment outlets. Yeah. And now it's the outright taking down of even American pages. Jesus. So it's getting really scary. That reminds me of a, um, a hat that I saw. It was like the red Trump hat. And it said, make Orwell fiction again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the Democrats are playing right into this by allowing the Democratic Party to trumpet this bullshit about Russia and, you know, the, the, to deflect away from their own culpability for the election that resulted in Trump and to try and distract away from any of the core issues you know going on here and it's just it's fucked up man they saw that they couldn't control the people anymore in 2016 and they're trying to clamp down on political freedom that's all i'm saying well and that would be i think it'd be really interesting to see what would happen if they did kind of take down the intellectual dark web Dude, I mean, this is this is the pattern that's followed so far, mm -hmm. is they start posting articles linking them to the alt-right, linking them to the radical left, linking them to Russia, and then they keep trumpeting that, and trumpeting that, and then they take them out. It's just like, these guys get like 160,000 views on like, in like a day or One two. One of the bloggers I follow that got taken down mm -hmm. had 70,000 followers. That's, yeah, that's... I mean, this is getting pretty crazy. Multiple page I follow got taken down during this. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, I mean, one of the things that Eric Weinstein talks about is the McCarthyism that's definitely going on, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is like... And, and it's, it's fucked up because a lot of people on the left, you know, they, they cheered for Alex Jones. Yeah. And it's, that's how it starts, bro. And it's not a constitutional issue. They'll go, oh, it's just a private business. And it's like, no, 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 but it's, you're setting a norm. You're setting the mechanism in place. You're, you're normalizing this. You're saying it's okay for them to do it. You need to have a backlash to this. Well, and then you just hope that there will be, like, a counter outlet for it. You know, be like, yeah. okay, well, if YouTube's not going to post it, then this other place will post it. But they're monopolies. Right. So then that gets again into what we were saying earlier about, you know, should these be public utilities? How do we, how do we deal with that? How yeah, do we totally. create that public space? Totally. Um, so since we're on this already, I want to just... So there's only one more part of this to really cover... Um, is, um, so the, the big tech companies have been in working with various government agencies in, in order to determine which of these pages or groups to take down. One of the main, um, think tanks they've been working with is the Atlantic Council. And the Atlantic Council is essentially a NATO think tank. So it involves like Europeans and Americans, right. former national security officials, um, Dick Cheney's in it. Uh, oh some neocons like <laughs> Bill Crystal and Henry Kissinger are in it. So people like that. Mm. Um, and I, they put out a report that I linked to you guys, and I want to read a few bits from it. Pretty scary. But it'll take me a second to find it. That is scary. Here we go. Um, so, yeah. So one of the things that... This is all from the, a report that came out of the Atlantic Council. 
Um, and you can look it up. It's like Sovereign Challenge Report 091. We'll link it. Yeah, I'll link it too. And it, it's just essentially um, about uh, the need for media censorship. Um, so, so here's some quotes from it. Here's some quotes from it. Technology has democratized the ability for sub-state groups and individuals to broadcast a narrative with limited resources and virtually unlimited scope. By contrast, in the past, the general public had limited sources of information, which were managed by professional gatekeepers. When radical and extremist views and incorrect ideas are broadcast over social media, they can even influence views of people who would not otherwise be sympathetic to that perspective. Oh Watts warns, when forwarded by a close friend or relation, false information carries additional legitimacy. Once accepted by an individual, this false information can be difficult to correct. Wow. Eliminating those individuals and organizations will not be sufficient to combat the narrative and may, in fact, help amplify it. He adds, this is also the case for censorship, as those behind the narrative can use the attempt to repress the message as proof of its truth, importance, or authenticity. Technology giants, including Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter, which can determine what people see and do not see, are vital to this... Uh, oh, I didn't quote the whole thing. It goes on. But yeah. Watts adds, fortunately, shifts in the policies of social media platforms, such as Facebook, have had significant impact on the type and quality of the content that is broadcast. Business and private sector may not naturally understand the role they play in combating disinformation, but theirs is one of the most important. In the West, at least, they have been thrust into a central role due to the general public's increased trust in them as institutions. So uh, one of the most disturbing things in it, too, is they, they, uh, they correlate the rise of the internet, and they compare it to the rise of the printing press in Enlightenment Europe. And they say that that development was negative because it caused, um, it caused instability and suffering and political discontent. <laughs> so they're saying that the French and American revolutions, the end of feudalism and monarchy and the rise of our current Enlightenment era was negative because it caused instability from the point of view of government power. And they point to that as a justification for us needing to tamp down on the internet now. Holy fuck. I mean, we're ta- we were talking about freaking Sam Harris and his beliefs in, on Islam. It's like, what is this? Yeah. This is like way worse than that. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe we should like talk about how there's some bad things and, about this well, religion. I mean, and this is like, yeah, maybe we should talk about like people sharing ideas yeah. is bad. And well, so, there's, also, there's also a lot of censorship in Islamic regimes. Totally. But yeah, yeah I, mean, I just mean that it's censorship like, in general is a huge problem. Well, the critique of there not being the availability of an idea, yeah. right? It's oh, like, yeah. I mean, this is the freedom of speech thing that yeah. like Jordan Peterson and all Definitely. of all Sam Harris was, is huge on that too. Yeah, it's sure. like, this is, that is what it is. It's yeah. like, there should be some things that are not talked about, and we should be able to decide what those things are. Yeah, Sam Harris actually uh, talked about briefly mentioned the whole uh, you know YouTube Google type thing and whether or not that should be thought of as like a public utility, like we were talking about. Yeah, it, it is. I some really way, think there's a huge, huge advocation yeah, to be made for that. It is the place <laughs> where modern political discussion happens. Yeah. It is the modern day amphitheater. Definitely. Are there problems with you know purchased? voices in terms of you know bots and various things like that yeah but i think that the problem far more arises from domestic sources than international ones i mean think how much the message is manipulated by our own political parties or corporate interests i mean i think that probably is a way bigger problem it's crazy 
Well, but in that, in the freaking assessment that that just was read, that's a good thing. Yeah, and you know, they you literally, know, they don't say this is what we mean, but that is what that says. It was crazy too. Um, so groups that were at the meeting of this Atlantic Council report included like um, the New York Police Department, and oh. they they wrote up like a list of of like concerning sites. Yeah, and gave them to the tech community, and then in this most recent purge, it included a ton of pages on police brutality. What do you... Yeah, big shocker. And then, of course, all these anti-war things right as we're ramping up to get into the war with Iran. This is fucking crazy. <laughs> wow. <coughs> Holy yeah. fuck. Yeah. And it's being barely talked about. I think the only people in mainstream that talked about it was, like, The Guardian and The Intercept. Or they got censored already. <laughs> yeah. And then The New York Times talked about it, but justifying it. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Wow, they justified Yeah, they it. said Americans are now using Russian playbook tactics right. and talking about... You know, just the most egregious examples. They, they cited things like, you know, spreading things with multiple accounts <laughs> to try and increase their influence. It's like, that's marketing. Who doesn't fucking do that? Yeah. So it's just a bunch of bullshit, dude. It's scary. It's terrifying. Good thing we're doing this. We, like, the right of people to speak out about their political rights is, or about their political views is under threat. So the yeah. fact that we're sitting down and do this thing, I think, is hugely vital. Uh, we don't get censored. Jesus. Maybe our goal Fuck. should be to become... You know, spoken <laughs> enough that we get censored. Well, what I keep thinking about is like Fuck. Google's constitution that they kind of made up, or their like morals to yeah. fall. Like yeah. one of them is "Don't be evil," and it's they just, you know they scrubbed they that. They removed right? that. Yeah. Oh, oh, so now it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now they're making a censored version of Google for China. So now we know Maybe they for made that a thing. Yeah, and now yeah. it's not anymore. Yeah. It's Dragonfly. It's yeah. called Google Dragonfly. No, no I mean, there's no be evil thing. Yeah, yeah it's not the, in their no, mission statement. But they anymore. had the no yes. evil. Yeah. And yes. then they took out the no evil. Yes. And now they're making a censored version of Google for China, which shows that they don't have an inherent principle of free speech. They're gonna go where the money is. Yeah. So if our government pushes them hard enough, they'll censor us. Yeah. The dark side is so strong. <laughs> yeah. seriously it's it crazy so it's terrifying this reminds me of uh you all uh you've all know Harari's talk on fascism and how uh we have to be really careful who has our information because whoever has the information is ostensibly the government yeah we are a corporate state yeah they can essentially control whatever they want so um one of the most prominent political philosophers of uh the 21st century sheldon woolen um he refer to our current uh, political organization as inverted totalitarianism in that it's not like classical totalitarianism, which is expressed by a charismatic leader. It's inverted totalitarianism because it's expressed by the anonymity of the corporate state and that we need a new term for it because it's a form of totalitarianism that hasn't happened yet. Interesting. We're going to talk about guns now. Um, so I guess we could just start by having everyone tell us what you think about guns. And let's start with just specifically gun control. Like, what are your views on that? And we'll, we'll start there. Why don't you start for us, So for me, um, I definitely believe in, like, the Second Amendment. It should be... We should be able to have guns. I think with gun control, my stance is there... It's kind of the same thing with capitalism is i think there needs to be some kind of like uh some checks to for people to buy guns they can't be as easy to obtain as they are today um i'm not sure what those checks are yet if it's i know for sure like we should do more extensive background checks um but maybe even more of like psychological checks 
where it starts getting the gray zone for me is taking guns away from people that have like mental illnesses. Because where do you draw that line where that person's depressed, you take their gun away? Or that person, you know. So, I mean, that's my stance. But I agree with, like, minimizing, uh, like, bullet capacity, mm. the automatic weapons. Um, Some more moderate need... regulation. <clears throat> uh, well, what do you mean specifically uh, by automatic weapons? So, full auto. Okay. I think semi, semi-automatic. Isn't it, isn't it legal in some states though? No, like, it's illegal, federally illegal to have a fully automatic weapon mm. unless you have a class three weapons permit, which is. So is that law enforcement? Uh, law enforcement can have them. You can get it as a civilian, but it's really difficult. It's mm. really expensive, and you have to go through a lot of like a gotcha. huge background check and gotcha. stuff. But then we have laws where like you can't tape another magazine to the back of another magazines for like easy right. reload, and then you have to like there's a lot of laws for uh, ten magazine rounds. Um, ten rounds per mag. Yeah. <laughs> no so I mean, I agree with all of those. Um, I mean, yeah, that's my stance. I think I just want to talk more about. What ch- if you guys agree with like having more checks and balances for when people are ready to buy a gun, mm-hmm. and maybe extending that period to, and maybe even having to go to a safety class? I don't know. So, first, before we concede those, what do you uh, what do you propose in terms of like magazine capacity limitation and uh, the semi-automatic weapons? So, I mean, those are more just to cut down on if somebody wants to create, like, a mass shooting, it would be harder for them to do it. They either need a lot of guns all loaded, or they have to have a lot of, you know, be really efficient with changing magazines. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're just cutting down the factor that somebody can spray 100 bullets, you know, from a crazy big machine gun. Sure. Well, I definitely think that there's good reason to limit fully automatic weapons um i would say that the effect of limiting magazine capacity is pretty minimal in terms of the reduction of violence so i agree i think the biggest step like i think those somewhat work but the biggest step is before you let somebody have a gun i think we need to come up with some kind of like test mm-hmm. like we already do a small background check but that's pretty much if you're a felon or have right. like you know assault charges yeah basically only a felony i believe yeah it? yeah so um but then you're checking yeah. the well-being of a human being and mm-hmm. so where do you draw that line that they're able to own you know because yeah. you're taking a, it's a constitutional right right so where can you draw that line saying it's, we're taking that, that right. away, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's also interesting because I think a lot of people, when they talk about gun control, they have the idea of limiting mass shootings in mind. So I think that's... It's not unwarranted, right? We, those are bad things. We don't want them to happen anymore, and we should definitely be trying to mitigate that. But from the perspective of limiting violence as a whole and reducing the number of murders with guns... Mass shootings are essentially a rounding error on top of the actual homicides that get committed with guns. So I think it's important to distinguish between the purpose of your legislation. So if you want to limit mass shootings, is that your goal? Or if you want to limit just like actual, just gun violence on the streets, 
if that's your goal. Because those have fundamentally different uh, ideas behind them. And I think, I think definitely the main <coughs> animating force in the desire for more um, more legislation is around mass shootings and specifically school shootings. Yeah, um, the killing of children is definitely yeah unacceptable so yeah before we get into the specifics of laws around trying to deal with that i want to ask if you guys think that it's a good idea to have armed guards at schools what do you think about that i think so um i mean i know they have it at most high schools nowadays obviously they got to be well trained that's a huge part of right like i think that's a huge problem with the police and security guards in general is they they just don't have good training and so yeah. we need to make sure that they're really well-trained. But if they are well-trained, I think Sam Harris, this is one of the things that he talks about where, you know, if you're in at your work that's like a, a gun-free zone and there's somebody going through the offices shooting everybody, you're not going to, in that moment, be thinking, man, I'm so glad that no one here has a gun besides this dude. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I think making gun-free zones is fundamentally mm-hmm. ineffective and honestly counterproductive in a lot of ways. I mean, there is definitely that argument, like, to fight a gun, you need a gun. Yeah. Um, and people often point out that having somebody with a concealed weapon around when there's a shooting, they're just going to have the possibility to shoot civilians, or they're just going to add to the chaos, or when the cops get there, they're going to think that it was him. I uh, have heard police departments put out that line of reasoning. Yeah. I think that's... Yeah. It does, some, in some ways, complicate their job. But when you talk about actually wanting to stop shootings before they happen, you've got to have somebody there that has the capability to do that. And I, I do think we should do more concealed carry for, I mean, yeah, it, it goes back to a check. People yeah. that apply for it, we should give guns to people that are that have proven themselves to be good yeah. uh, with totally. people in and society. It, it's funny because uh, people with concealed weapons permits actually commit fewer crimes than cops do. So there's really this fundamental confusion i think about what giving people concealed weapons permits actually does so i think the argument against concealed weapons is pretty unfounded in most cases and i think having gun-free zones you're really just guaranteeing that that guy doesn't have to worry when he walks in there you know you're just saying like oh there's no guns in there great i don't even need my body on the day that being said (laughs) the idea to me that you know the solution to our you know crazy school shooting problem is to have you know armed teachers i mean it's just just so gross to me i don't know i feel like there's more root issues than that and i feel like that's just i don't think that's a solution either but i do think if the teacher wanted to go through a you know rigorous course yeah self-sought but the idea that that's the solution to this problem really grosses me out i agree with that too i think do you think that it do you think that it hinges on guns do you think that that's the, the do you th- feel like that's the factor that needs to be focused on at school shootings? Like I get that without I, I don't know. This isn't um, a topic I have a firm stance on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different arguments going on here. Um, you know, I think more to do with the problem with school shooting. I think the availability of guns is part of why it happens, um, but I think it has a lot more to do with the you know socioeconomic turmoil in this country. I think it has a lot more to do with um, the disenfranchisement of, you know, especially um, white males. Um, and let me be clear when I'm saying that, you know, that's we're transitioning out of an era where, you know, white men expected that they'd be able to go into the workforce 
and get a you know a job with a living wage and raise a family on one income. And you know now we have you know we need two two income households. You know um, gender relations are changing. Um, you know there's a lot of economic distress and political disenfranchisement. Combine that with our the fact that our culture is pretty violent. Um, I think there's just a lot of bigger issues at play. And I don't think just dealing with guns is going to solve the problem, although I think the availability of guns in that context certainly contributes. I agree with you in a lot of ways. I think uh, I think bans on any type of gun, I think trying to... I Honestly, I think the whole the talk about gun control in the, the broadest sense is really a distraction from the, other, the underlying problems that cause these kinds of things. So specifically when we're talking about mass shootings, right? Yeah. So you think about the legislation that's been proposed to try and mitigate some of this, like, uh, you know, anything that sort of looks like an assault rifle you can't have, or right. no semi-automatic weapons, or, uh, you know, let's, let's limit magazine capacity. These ideas are pretty unfounded in terms of their yeah. actual possible effect. So when you look at what it takes, so, I mean, this is going to sound it almost borders on like an advocation for no guns at all because the idea that that's going to limit someone's ability to kill a bunch of people with guns is pretty stupid. If, if somebody spends a little bit of time with different types of guns, you start to get the sense that having a 30 round clip is nice, but you don't need it. So, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that not that I think that we should ban all guns and not that I think that having a 30 round clip limited wouldn't necessarily help a little but mostly that it's not going to do that much and i think people are going to be surprised by how little it does so for instance the virginia tech shooting was done with handguns right so you limit the you can limit the clip size of a handgun too but again you're limiting it to 10 in most cases which is if you try to limit it more than that you're starting to get into a self-defense argument where people that want to have handguns for self-defense have problems and uh if you don't limit it or if you leave it at 10, you're looking at somebody bringing two or three handguns and having the same kind of possibility. And having a rifle isn't necessarily an advantage in these close quarters encounters. You know, maybe it was for the Vegas guy, but he had fully automatic weapons anyway. So you're looking at a completely different case where the law probably wouldn't have helped anyway. And then again, you have the ability for someone to use a shotgun, which is probably fundamentally more effective in these kinds of cases. And uh, you know, even a pump action shotgun could be fired with a, a roughly the same speed as a, a semi-automatic shotgun with very little training. I mean, maybe a couple days. Did the did the Vegas <laughs> guy have full auto? I thought he just Pretty had sure. the bump oh, stock. You're right. You're right. To make semi-automatic stock. feel more like a full auto. You're right. He did have a bump stock. I, I missed. So he had an illegal. I know yeah, that my. <laughs> but you can get things in Nevada yeah. that you like would be illegal in other states, yeah. especially like round magazines. Mm-hmm. You can get bigger <clears throat> capacity. Yeah, um, I'm I'm certainly not above limiting the capacity, but I also think that it's more of a distraction, and it's also so it's a distraction in, in two ways. One is only focusing on mass shootings, and that's a very small percentage of the actual gun violence, which again it's horrific, and we should try to limit it however we can in you know without being ridiculous, but. Uh, I think that mostly it's a distraction because that's not really what's causing the problem. Um, you know, sure, like getting rid of the gun show loophole and making it so that uh, there's some sort of like mental health check on whether or not you could have a gun would be good. But even then, you're looking at you know uh, a friend having a gun that you take or 
Uh, you know, like if these people really want to get the weapon, they're probably going to find a way. And it's really hard to make it so that they couldn't. And I feel like even more extensive background checks is not going to stop that problem. So I think the fundamental approach to solving the actual school shooting problem is with mental health and economic wellness. Because like if you, if you make it so that people aren't poor and they have access to mental health counseling if they need it, then I feel like the incidence of this goes way down. Yeah. And then I also the um, media's tr treatment of these. See, that's a huge thing too. We, we have shootings. a, not only is the media incredibly sensationalist, yeah. um, and then on top of that, you have a culture that glorifies um, celebrity. Yeah. And those are bad. And violence. Common, and ways. violence. And like those are all bad our movies, you know? Yeah. We aren't allowed to see, uh, you know, genitalia, but we can see someone's head getting blown up. Yeah, what's John Lennon? We, we, uh, we have to make love in darkness, but we make violence in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that. I mean, Alan Watts says the same thing. Yeah, it's, like, it's pretty yeah. silly. Um, and there's, yeah, you know, I, I'm in favor of trying these smaller reforms. And, <laughs> you know, I think the biggest thing is it needs to be studied more in depth. I mean, the CDC is not allowed to study gun violence. That is pretty you know? silly. Um, and Anytime I think, you limit what people can study, I think you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the biggest issues, too, is um, it's kind of become a political football. Yeah, um, it's a huge one. And, you know, you have a problem where the people that know or more advocating for gun rights um, aren't trying to solve the problem. Yeah. So you have people on the right who are just like, nope, shut up, don't talk about it. And so then people on the left who don't know what the fuck they're talking about, because generally they're not gun owners, mm -hmm. um, but they're just like, dude, our kids are being shot. Like, yeah. We need to do something. So they're just like, fucking try anything. I don't yeah. know. And so I really think the it's impetus is on those who have more knowledge and more advocacy for gun rights to be um, more energetically trying to apply potential solutions to the problem. I agree. Um, as far <laughs> as like... Um, I think they need to articulate better why their solutions that are proposed won't work because they typically True. just say that's asinine. It and just it's never becomes a it just becomes a then, tribal tip for tax. Exactly, well, that's not going to solve the problem. But, but another I, real quick thing I want to throw in good. when Dwight and you know I was talking earlier about the socioeconomic context, um, I would really advocate for people to check out Chris Hedges' new book, America: The Farewell Tour, because what he talks about is that in declining societies. Um, it unleashes this psychological phenomenon we've seen a lot in history called um, the, the anime or uh, the death instinct. And the way that declining societies kind of like unleash um, symptoms of that. And that one of those might be um, the, the rise of mass shootings hmm. as economic displacement. Interesting. And other things. I just think to get a gun, it's, it's too easy. I mean, so there's mass shootings, but I think there's also just um, like gun accidents is huge. You don't even you're not even required to go through a training course yeah. on the gun you get. You can you wait for your background takes like a week or two and then you get your gun. You Depends pick it up on at that, a actually, store. A lot of times, uh, especially in states that are more lenient, there's no there's no waiting period. So oh, there's no is there's there waiting, no background? Not there's a background. Oh, there's a background. There's always a background check that's federally mandated, but the waiting period is state by state, and lots of states don't have one. Like, so you can walk out with the gun, but then yeah, they might take it back? No, 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 no. The background check happens okay, within like 40 minutes. Okay, okay. That's, that's how it goes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree that we should make it, we should definitely standardize, and we should make it harder to get a gun than just walking in and passing a background check. 
I advocate for essentially like a driver's license for yeah, guns. And, you know, you'd be up in mm, every totally. five years or something like that. Because it makes no sense that if you have 40 guns and then you go to buy a new one, you have to get a background check. Like, you already have 40 guns. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter if you get another one, right? But if you have a license that you just have, like, these, there's a few things that you have to do to maintain it. Um, and then every, you know, however many years you have a, uh, you know, a retraining or a test or whatever to make sure that you're psychologically well off still and uh, that I, I feel like that's reasonable. I, I don't like it in a lot of ways because it's a little, you know, it's intrusive. But well, there, it's also the, the counter argument for a driver's license anyway. The so. counter argument is going to be, you know, well, driving is a privilege, but, yeah. you know, gun ownership is a, is a constitutional right. So that's going to yeah. be the argument there. Um, I personally agree with you. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to me. Well, you know, we already limit gun ownership anyway, in terms of, like, if you're a felon, you can't have it. Well, I mean, on principle, so, I mean, there, there's obviously limits to um, the right to bear arms, because, I mean, you can't have a tank, or exactly. you can't have a bazooka. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the principle is already there, it's just a matter of where's the line. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely a lot of qualms that I have about government oversight in general, and them having a, a right to say no to my right, you know? Right. But, uh... I think it's not unreasonable. You could set it up in such a way that it wouldn't be unreasonable. And if you were able to do that in terms of, you know, you pass a, a safety exam and a psychological wellness and then the background check and then you get your license. And See, I, <clears throat> yeah, I agree with the, the, the safety and the background. The, the hard part that I think people would disagree with is the psychological test. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough one. And that's where we up. need more studying we need it a lot on... Yeah, our like our how our brains work mm -hmm. and yeah, and there's there's no justification besides purely political motives for not you know doing all the the due diligence and research that we can. Yeah, there is psychological testing going on right now for that though. There's like you can't do you can't do research into like the like the data like CDC can't, but like yeah. I know people here at OSU that are doing. What happens, right. like, when you see someone with a gun, what do you do? Or, like, how is your attention fixated on a gun versus, yeah. like, the person holding the gun? There's, like, yeah. plenty of that kind like of stuff. Like, my, right my, the thing that comes to my head is, like, if you're depressed and you maybe even have thoughts of suicide and you say that to the person, like, are they going to say you can't own a gun? Is that enough justification? Yeah. Where to draw the line is definitely an interesting topic. And I think... Suicide. Buy a knife and commit suicide, suicide is the other thing that yeah, it's a different topic for me because I boy, I might trip over myself here. <laughs> uh, I I don't careful now. I know. Right? <laughs> it's one of those times. If I was famous enough, I'd get misquoted by this. Uh, but I'm thankfully hey, no we're still in that, uh, I am. that wonderful green zone. I know, right? So. Taking away a, a weapon from somebody that's suicidal, I don't want to say that that's bad because, you know, I, I think most people that are suicidal, if they get the proper help, can be brought out of that. And I think that's definitely what they should do rather than kill themselves. I think they should seek out help. And I think that it should be way easier to get that help in our society. Yeah. And we need to do whatever we can to remove the stigmas around getting that help. Well, mental health in this country in general is just atrocious. It's abysmal. Yeah. And it's, it's despicable that it is that bad. In the adult world. So that, I think, is the, the main thing that I think about with that. Uh, it's hard for me to want to say that 
if you're depressed, you shouldn't be able to have a gun. That's really hard for me to say. I think the clearest line is that if there's any, if there's any indication that a professional has that you could harm somebody else on purpose, that's when I would say you shouldn't have your gun anymore. But as far as just being depressed, maybe there could be mandatory counseling or something like that. But def- I, I wouldn't say that you should take it away from them. I'm relatively certain that, it, and this is, I mean, obvious. So if you're, if you have depression or saying that you're clinically diagnosed with that, is that what we're saying here? Because how are they supposed to know if you're not clinically diagnosed? Yeah, maybe most clinically undiagnosed. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but if that, if, but even if we are, we're like going down that trick. Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm relatively certain that clinical psychologists, if they do hear that you're telling someone like telling them that you want to harm someone Mm -hmm. and where it's going to happen and when you're going to do it then they can right tell the authorities yeah yeah. but before then yeah it's pretty even then you can't really do it yeah there's a lot there's a lot and it's important that you have those laws too because otherwise those people won't say anything um so it's it's becomes this interesting gray area where if somebody really wants to harm someone they're, and they're, they had the wherewithal to hide that, then what test are you going to give them that's going to make up for it? You know, it's going to cut through that somehow. So I think the idea that psychological testing could be effective in that realm is maybe a little idealistic, but it might be able to stop some. It might be able to stop some of them. Unless there was a generalized psychological test that everyone had to go through, and then once you start seeing that kind of depression, then you say... See, but I don't like... I don't like psych exams on mass. Yeah, the government yeah. that concerns me. demanding the psych exams. Kind of right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's I a tough, it's a tough. That would be an interesting not, one to talk about. Not that they're not already going to be doing it just by like yeah. analyzing our online behavior and shit. But. <laughs> right. God. Dude, um, I think that teachers. I mean, I think that there is a vast amount more benefit that can happen for education than. than I agree. That there's a lot of benefit that could come from it. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. It's an authoritarian age we're entering, I fear. It can be for research and volunteer, but no way the government have control over everyone taking a psych exam. Right. I didn't say that. I meant like for schooling and stuff like that. I I would be in favor of that if it was was, like highly confidential and, but still, I mean, that's on some Well, if you have it trained. The government wouldn't be able to take a peek. But that's how all medical reports work. That's yeah. true. And a lot of our medical information is sold by corporations and shit, so yeah. that's scary too. <laughs> that's yeah. scary. I would say having a, a psychological test before you can have a gun is tricky, but what you may be able to do is if you have a, you know, like say we have this license set up, if you have a gun license, then you're uh, required to go to a certain number of counseling sessions in a given amount of time. Just like maybe even they're just once a year, like a check-in. Yeah, I like And then if there's something that the psychologist sees that's, you know, maybe a little suspicious, they can uh, require that you do more. And if you don't, then you lose your license. And then if there's some, like you could maybe set up some sort of criteria where if they really believe that you're going to harm somebody, then they get a second opinion. And then if that, you know, they agree, then you can take it away. But it just gets, it gets really weird because, you know, you have like, okay, what's the political bent of the psychologist involved? You know, like, are they liberal psychologists right. and they want to limit gun ownership? And then you have, you know, just their fallibility in general and so it's definitely a tricky area trying to uh trying to limit one of those fundamental rights in in that regard 
Yeah, real quick, I do want to touch on the whole civil, civil liberty side of it, because I tend to be someone who's um, far more in favor of, like, civil liberties and erring on the side of civil liberties in general. So, um, yeah, as far as that goes, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty, like, I'm in favor of, you know, revolution, albeit nonviolent. Um, as far as, like, the right to bear arms, I have a hard time imagining any revolution in a modern context being successful in a violent way. I think it needs to be mass civil disobedience. I agree. The only way I see guns being um, necessary in a civil liberty, like, versus a tyrannical government context would be if, like, we've already been taken over by an authoritarian government and it's just about resistance now, like right. physical resistance. Um, so I, I'm not super worried about it in that lens, though I still want to protect the right of average citizens to keep guns. I'm not like a fervent, um, fervently on, on one side or the other there. Um, and then there's this whole right wing line that <clears throat> there's some conspiracy to like take away our gun rights. And I don't buy that either, even though I'm generally um, very sensitive to, uh, to civil liberty infringement. Um, I think most of our civil liberty infringement has been a bipartisan project, whether it's, <laughs> you know, freedom of speech or, you know, uh, privacy, you know, with uh, spying and all these different things. Um, I, I just don't think those in power care very much about guns one way or the other. I think they just use it as political football. Yeah. You know, I think um, there's uh, moneyed interests on one side that, you know, benefit off of, you know, this issue as a political issue. You know, every time there's a mass shooting, uh, gun sales go way up, uh, the NRA money goes way up. Um, and then raise a big supporter of Republican candidates, you know, and then Democrats, you know, channel the anger of these, you know, events to channel support on the left. So the fact that it's so tribalistic, as opposed to bipartisan, yeah. makes me feel like those in power don't really care one way or the other. It's just a political game. Yeah. So I don't buy that whole, like, it's a conspiracy to take our guns thing. Oh. Um, I mean, that's the Trump you should just watch his most recent rally because he literally says the Democrats are going to take your guns. Like, oh, he's referring to, it, to Nevada. And he uses it as a tool when it's just, like, blatantly not true. Well, there certainly are Democrats that want that. True. But it's also, they're parroting to their own constituents. Yeah. yeah. And it's, whether it's, or not they would actually do that is another question. But to me, the, the argument for guns is not in the realm of trying to overthrow the government. But rather, uh, a basic right for self-defense. Right. Totally, um, that's probably the most compelling to. Me too. Yeah, I want to. I, I want to be able to have a gun. I don't. Yeah. I don't need. I and mean, just a shotgun is <clears throat> fine for me, or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, um, I'd like to be able to defend myself. I think a handgun is pretty important for self-defense. Yeah. If you want, if you really want to be an advocate for self-defense, then a handgun is probably your most important point that you wouldn't want to give up. Yeah. Uh, I think shotguns are incredibly right good. Defense, incredibly good for home defense. Yeah. And probably better than handguns in most cases. However, if you're in close quarters, it could be easier to take away, those right. kinds of things. So handguns kind of the be all end all of self defense in a lot of in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think uh, you know, we're all guys here, but to be a woman in this world is a lot scarier in terms right. of what you face physically. You know, like I do a lot of jujitsu and so even if I'm unarmed and there's one person attacking me I have a chance that, you know, like if they're untrained, I'm probably going to beat them up. Right. And I'm, I'm probably not 
horrifically weaker than them, and uh, I, I probably don't, I, I'm not outweighed by probably more than, you know, 50, 60 pounds, maybe, unless they're really, really big, you know, so it's definitely a different world when you start talking about, yeah. you know, a 100-pound woman who is untrained in anything. And uh, well, and they're just targeted more so, than I think. Yeah, and that's, oh, that's the other thing, yeah, is they're, they're obviously way more of a target, yeah. and so... The nice thing about guns is that 100-pound woman can kill a 260-pound man with right. no effort at all, other than, you know, maybe some training and definitely some training, I should say, and uh, and then, you know, being willing to do that. And so the, the equalizing part of it, I think, is just a huge compelling argument. And I think that uh, saying that you want to take that away is, in, you know, allowing for a case where a woman can't defend her child or, you know, like a lot of these things that could be solved by the right person having a gun in that instance. So that's one of the biggest arguments for guns that I have. For sure. Uh, you know, tangentially, I also, I like to hunt. I think hunting is a much more sustainable way to eat meat. And so I think being able to hunt with a rifle or a bow uh, is pretty, that's something that I don't think we should take away either. Yeah. And it's one of those ways, going back to what we're talking about with the Native Americans, it's something that you can sort of get back to your roots in yeah. a lot of ways. And um, that sort of, that whole cycle of providing for yourself and all that, it can be really beneficial for a lot of psychological reasons as well. Uh, so that would be my, why I would want to advocate for hunting weapons to be allowed as well. So those are my main arguments for... I don't think very many people are worried about the <coughs> hunting ones, because most of those yeah. are like single fire or... Yeah, I mean, some automatic hunting rifles or uh, shotguns, you could you could certainly make a case that you could do a lot with those, but especially like most of the well-trained person. Like, most of the mass shootings, and like I feel like most of those are with not hunting style. Like, you don't go hunting with, a, with well, most some of those guns. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, so the, the use of ARs in mass shootings is interesting because in most cases, the advantage of the, the AR is not really levied, right? So the advantage of a rifle over a pistol is distance. It's e much easier to fire accurately at a long distance. Velocity doesn't really come into play that much. It's Does not, it have more gunpowder in a rifle? Around? Yes, for sure, but that's not to say that that would matter that much is what I'm saying. Um, you can get plenty of velocity out of a handgun, and if you're within 50 yards, the killing potential is not very different, depending on the round. You know, there are certainly rifles that you could pick that would be more devastating than your average handgun, but there's lots of handguns that are incredibly devastating, and if you pick the right round, you're not really looking at much of a difference, depending on, you know, there's lots of factors involved, right? Yeah. Like, the uh, a rifle can is more likely to go through, uh, like, cover, so like wood, and that kind of thing, depending on the, the round, again, that's something that a lot of people don't recognize, is the round makes a huge difference, so the type... Aren't they making some laws used. against, like, hollow point? Because, like, hollow, like, kills way more than, a, like, a normal bullet, right? What, because it... Because it expands in the body, in the body and yeah. it damages the body way more. Right. Um, I don't know about any laws that they're making about that. Obviously, the Geneva Convention prohibits the use of hollow points, and so what, uh, what we do with our rounds that we use in the military is we we make them just stable enough in their rotation that they will uh, continue to travel in a stable and controlled manner until they hit something in which point they tumble and so they they, they sort of increase the size of the wound by tumbling within somebody instead of yeah. uh, fragmenting uh, which is actually more effective 
in a lot of cases because it can go through cover, whereas hollow point's really bad at going through anything. Yeah. Uh, they, it'll just shatter once it hits something. So a hollow point is actually fundamentally safer in terms of ricochets because it's it's going to shatter when it hits something. And then, it might get a little fragment, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah. It might be if you're right next to it, it might be like a little mini frag grenade, but it's probably not going to penetrate very far. If you get hit with a hollow point, however, <laughs> it can be it can be very very devastating. So uh, I don't know if they're trying to limit that. Uh, I would guess that they'd have a hard time doing that if they were going to. Um, but hollow points are not typically a hunting round either, so there is maybe yeah, some traction. You're ruining the meat. Yeah, there, and and also you don't necessarily want a hollow point for uh, killing an animal because if you hit uh, a deer in the shoulder with a hollow point, you might your your bullet would fragment immediately without possibly going through any vital organs. So you essentially leave them with a, a surface wound instead of, if you had a soft point, it would probably break the bone and go through and kill the animal. Yeah. So it's just safer in terms of uh, getting an ethical kill to use uh, a soft point as your hunting round. And, and soft points will also uh, mushroom a little bit. They just don't fragment in the same way. So anyway, as far as whether or not a rifle or a handgun is more deadly, there's a huge case to be made that a handgun would be worse for somebody to have than a rifle because it's harder to take it away in a lot of cases and uh, much, much easier to conceal. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can have multiple handguns. You could have, like the Virginia Tech guy had two. It wouldn't be that hard to have four, you know. Um, so then you're, you're looking at mitigating the problem of reloading, whereas trying to carry even two ARs would be really cumbersome. So... When people say that ARs are, are a big problem, I kind of, it doesn't really resonate with me very much. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people say this based on the idea of like, why would anyone ever need that, right? And I think that's a pretty compelling argument. Uh, there's only a few cases of self-defense, you know, where like multiple people are trying to come into your house or something yeah. where you would need more than, than probably even five rounds. Um, I would say 10 to be safe, especially if you're not overly well trained. But, uh, you know, if you have multiple attackers, you might want more than that. And then again, home defense with a shotgun is probably a better option anyway, uh, because you don't have to be as accurate. So anyway, it's hard. It's hard for me to argue that ARs are an integral part of self-defense. And it's hard for me to say that I don't see that I see a, like a compelling reason to keep them. But I also find a huge problem with the idea that banning them would help really at all. Because I think well, they would just, just use handguns style. at that point. Well, the thing is, it's a style <laughs> of a gun. It's not really much different than any other rifle. Yeah. You're just... you're. It just looks scary. Yeah. That's yeah. the so biggest thing. Here, Here's a twist on the whole um, gun debate that I, I pretty much have never heard really talked about, but I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is... Um, the, the history of, you know, in, uh, in like, totalitarian right-wing regimes um, using guns to, you know, use mob violence, essentially, to enforce uh, totalitarian rule. So, for example, in the United States, there's a long history of whipping up mobs of reactionary right-wing, you know, people uh, to get their guns and go, you know, terrorize some political group. There's a long history of that in the United States. Um you have a lot of guns hoarded by a very small percentage of people in this country. Um, we're seeing this right now play out in Brazil. So right now there's a, uh, a fascist 
uh, Bolsonaro, and he's outwardly spoken about wanting to return to the uh, former dictator. They've only had a democracy for a few decades, but like 30-some years. Um, it's been going great for him. <laughs> Uh, it was at first, and then there was um, a coup uh, organized, like a soft coup organized by uh, the wealthy business interests there mm-hmm. to overthrow the elected president, put in a corporate puppet, uh, made a bunch of things not work. Now the people are freaking out, and they're falling into the hands of a demagogue, mm-hmm. and they haven't had long to really cement any institutional norms of democracy. So, mm-hmm. uh, And Bolsonaro, he's talked about wanting guns to be available to everyone. And that we should uh, directly eliminate, you know, the scum of society and shit like that. Oh, so th- there's this argument, which the right ignores, which is the threat of guns um, being in the hands of, you know, mobs that are, you know, uh, influenced by totalitarian regimes. So, there's also, and I could see that really happening in this country if it got bad enough. Um, so, yeah, that's not certainly. A I can. Scary so in Mexico, <laughs> I don't know. If there's a solution to that, but I'm yeah. just saying that concerns me. There's groups of people in Mexico that are so fed up with the corrupt government and the cartel mm-hmm. yeah. that they are taking their cities back. They're killing like cartels themselves, and yeah. So but there's arguments on both, both ways. sides. Yeah, and I can see where you're scared about, like, yeah, right wing in the United States. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's both sides, and I, yeah, I don't know if it's a good enough argument to take. Guns. I don't either, and I'm not advocating that, but yeah. I, I do think it's a point of discussion that's not usually brought up, and usually right-wingers will say that taking guns is a purely left-wing notion. Um, or, or I, what was I going to say? Anyway, I don't think I don't think that's um, acknowledged on the right, the threat of uh, gun, gun mobs in history, especially on yeah, the right. Yeah, I would agree that's not acknowledged. I think the fundamental problem with even trying to deal with that issue in the U.S. is just the ubiquity of guns. Yeah. So to, to propose any kind of buyback program or any anything where you get rid of guns, it, I just don't think no, I don't it's going to happen here anyway. So, so then to think that we could somehow curtail the problem of possible mob violence, I just don't see a path oh, forward. My point I was going to make is that... <clears throat> On the right, there's a talking point that authoritarian governments will always try to take away your guns. But yeah. we have examples of exactly the opposite as well, where they want people to have guns so they can rile up vigilante mobs to do yeah. the dirty work so they don't have to. Well, it's become very different now that guns are not the be-all, end-all of war. Right. You know, back in World War II era, even, if you had a mob of people with guns, they were the same guns that were being used in war, yeah. one. And... Uh, they could make a huge difference if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, one Apache just fucks your whole mob up with yeah. two rockets. And there's well, no recourse unless yeah. you have a 50 BMG and a ridiculously well-trained shooter. Yeah. So like, I think the idea is <clears throat> guerrilla warfare. Like, if yeah. we were taking that possibility over, where it was so bad. Thermal vision and, <laughs> yeah, drones, and drones. and But it'd be the same thing. It's the problems Jesus. that we're dealing in the Middle East. Yeah, why it's it so hard to fight that. those people because they conceal the guns, they shoot up yeah. a bunch of things, and then they hide their guns and, they and hide. Civilians, yeah. There, there yeah. is more to be said for guerrilla warfare than yeah. I think we give credit so for. So in a pot, yeah, like that's why it's so hard to fight. But still. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty... Pretty much on the, the ship of I want all my all the guns, you know. Like I would personally love to have a fully automatic gun at some point, and I don't, I don't know if I'll go through the rigmarole to do it. But I also really like the idea of having suppressors, just because they're they're cool and they sound 
Like it makes it so that it's much quieter when you shoot, um, mm-hmm. which is just nice. But uh, like obviously that has concerning implications, though. Yeah, <laughs> it, it could. Although I wouldn't necessarily say that having a suppressor is that should be as big of a deal as we make it out to be. Because yeah, it's a lot louder than it is in the movies. Yeah, it's stuff. much yeah. much louder. And uh, yeah, anyway, there's there's that's a whole other discussion. And uh, but I, I'm not hard and fast on these things. I'm not saying that I want to re-legalize fully automatic weapons or anything, but I do like ARs a lot and I would like to have some and I like the idea of, you know, being ready for the zombie apocalypse and whatever. <laughs> uh, not to say that I'll have my own bunker or anything like that, but I, I understand the mentality and yeah. I understand uh, the idea that, you know, maybe if shit really did hit the fan, it'd be nice to think that you could possibly have some sort of recourse, right. you know. and So... Uh, fundamentally what it comes down to though is what would be the effectiveness of not letting that happen you know of limiting ARs and all these other types of guns and I just I don't see the case of the effectiveness of limitation being very compelling I really don't I think uh, I think a good enough person with a bow could cause pretty pretty big harm and you know we've seen people in China go into schools and attack them with knives and you know they've killed as many people in some cases as some of these school shootings obviously knives are nowhere near as effective as guns but uh, to think that getting rid of the gun gets rid of the problem is pretty silly yeah I agree but I think there's some like there's some middle ground I don't think we should be handing out automatic ARs to people if they want one I think there still needs to be the checks. Yep. And yeah, you can still cause damage with a bow, with a knife, with a car, with what, yeah. you know. But like a gun is <clears throat> one of the easiest ways to cause a lot of damage. So That's if true. we can put a check on that and then have as many people, good citizens, having concealed carry and then have checks that people have to go through before buying a gun. Yeah. I definitely think there's something to be said about that. I do think Sam Harris has another good point on this where, uh, you know, when we look at the deaths due to car accidents, they're pretty high, right? And we look at, I think they're like 30,000 a year, every year, reliably. According to him, at least, I didn't check his number. <clears throat> but that's quite a bit higher than gun violence. And we kind of just accept that. We're just like, well, it is what it is, you know? When, if we really looked at it, we couldn't, govern all cars and make it so that they can't accelerate past a certain rate or that uh you know they couldn't have a top speed past a certain speed and we could even you know lower speed limits in almost everywhere and we could govern cars to even lower speed limits and we could definitely reduce that number of deaths there's a hundred percent but essentially people's reasoning for not doing that is driving wouldn't be as fun right (laughs) like what's the what's the reason that we don't do that and so then when we look at trying to limit gun violence, which is a small, you know, smaller amount of violence, and, and it's kind of like, what, where is the moral equivalence there, you know? Uh, I think there's definitely something to be said about that, where we sort of misattribute violence and problems, and uh, we kind of forget about the statistics, right? Because guns are so in your face and nasty and scary, you know? Um, so... Anyway, well, I just think it's that's important. almost the reverse of his argument from earlier, you know, because I mean, you have uh, it's exactly the yeah, you have you have cars, <laughs> you have cars killing people accidentally, and then you have guns killing people on purpose, or people sure. people using guns to kill people on purpose. Yeah. So, uh, I think there's certainly something more um, 
more shocking, more uh, morally outrageous yeah. about that. I um, guess especially you're right. when it has to do with young children. You're right. Moral equivalence is the wrong word, but I guess the the idea that uh, that gun violence is the biggest problem, you know, right. or is a bigger problem than that. And to think that I'm taking this argument a little bit out of context, so like I'm not I'm not steel manning him properly, but um, to say that you're willing to <clears throat> limit guns just because like like you don't want somebody to have an ar because they want the ar because they're fun but you're willing to drive faster and you know not limit people's ability to do that because it's fun it is it's different right. obviously right but the fact that we're not willing to limit those things but we're so eager to limit guns is uh i don't know it just seems like kind of a a double standard. To we say. do limit those things. Yeah. Well, to well, be fair, we, we do try. limit those things way more than guns right now. But I mean, Dwight did just, like, there's a good again. point. Like, you could literally limit the amount yeah. of speed a car can go, yeah. but we don't do it. Yeah. We could say you can't go over 80, 80 miles an hour. Yeah. I've argued that. And I also think that that's probably going to happen when we get electric cars. Well, except it's going to be, I mean, not electric. Well, we're self driving. If, if we fully yeah, um, automate driving exactly. go way faster. Exactly. But the idea would be like, it's the mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. It's mistakes that yeah. lead to the car death. <clears throat> yeah. And so I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent him or the, my own ideas with that. I'm not saying that they're, they are morally equivalent. I shouldn't have said that. We just need um, guns that are programmed to only kill bad guys. <laughs> there you go. And then we're good. <laughs> Easy, Perfect right? moral arbiter. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Anyway, um, there's definitely... Read the face of the enemy to see if they're evil or not. <laughs> exactly. No, see, this is one of the psychological reports from earlier. There we go. Really well. like, this one they can have a tendency. score. Exactly. They can have a moral score that pops up above their head inside like the gun sight. It's like the Black Mirror episode. Oh, yeah. like everyone yeah. Or like what they're doing in China right now in real life. Yeah. The rating. It's crazy. Yep. But yeah, anyway, um, I would say just as like a last part of that... Um, I don't, I'm not against gun legislation as a whole. I just think it needs to be done intelligently and we need to look at it in the broader context of like, what are we trying to do? Will it be effective? And what other things should we be trying to do that are possibly even more impactful? Uh, I think getting outraged about school shootings and that kind of thing makes a ton of sense. And it, it it's something that's super visceral to people and it, it should be like, it's yeah crazy. But I think looking at, you know, mental health and the media and, you know, possibly having guards around there are going to be way more effective methods of curtailing that type of violence than going after the guns. Um, and I would, I would like to, you know, put the impetus on those in favor of gun ownership to be more <laughs> active in calling for measures that you think actually make sense. Yeah. And, you know, because in lieu of that, those who don't know stuff are... I mean, rightly going to be emotionally outraged and demanding action. And, yeah. you know, so those who know the most about the issue should be the most active to ensure that it's done in a logical way. Definitely. Um, you know, so, I think, yeah, all that push for research, push for, you know, reforms that make sense. Um, don't, don't be falling into the political, you know, playbook of yeah. uh, the tribalism. I think both sides need to be a lot better about that in general. Mm -hmm. And they need to be a lot better about coming together and talking about it and coming to an agreement on something yeah. because yeah. like with the instance of you know gun control we have democrats that are just saying oh we need to limit 
pick your part of the gun, you know, and they'll they'll throw out anything. They'll be like, we shouldn't have guns with silver slides. And it's like, yeah, it has nothing to do with anything. And then on the anything. right, you know, you have Republicans <laughs> being like, oh, Democrats want to take your guns so they yeah. can put you in Walmart concentration camps. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, but, but my point was just that when you when you say, when you have Democrats throwing out crazy legislation like that, then they make the the conservatives, the people that actually know about guns, mad because yeah. they recognize immediately that it's not going to do anything. Yeah. And so then you just have this fighting that happens yeah. as opposed to coming together and being like, okay, what's actually going to help? Yeah. You know, and, and being reasonable about those types of things. And, you know, I, I know a lot of gun owners that are more than willing to look at the holes in gun ownership. Right. But they hate yeah. when somebody proposes legislation See, out of this, this moral framework thinking that they know and that like they can understand this and that them having a gun is this huge moral outrage, you yeah. know, when they've never even shot one. They I don't mean, understand I feel anything like about it. So many of our issues boil down to, you know, having a two party system that's yeah. captured by corporate power and totally. you know, we, we don't have functioning institutions anymore. We don't have institutions that respond to the problems we face or that listen to the will of the people. So um, shit's got to change big, guys.